It's so boring here, Margaret. Nothing but monkeys and jeeps exploding in mid-air. If only I could find a real podcaster. I need to use your podcast application. She'll call you back. Who are you? Franklin. Tom Franklin. Henry can carry. It's Tom. I'll start recording with you guys in one hour. Won't you join me? Better make that too. Welcome to the Flick Lab. This is a serious film podcast analysis program. It, it is something. I, I don't know serious and I don't know about podcast or even analysis, but this is, this is something. Welcome on board indeed. This is the kind of film podcast where we check if it's actually possible that you could have such a bad salt corrosion in your ladder. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. And that is our friend Tom joining us as a guest for our, as a Bond expert for our Bond episodes. Yeah. So that, oh, oh, that all together must mean that we are doing a Bond episode once again. <clears throat> Chances are high. <laughs> Chances are high. Whew, we are finally hitting Timothy Dalton dangerous in this podcast. It seems we're making great progress to be fair. Who would have thought? We have gone through so much nonsense lately that it's good to grab our our pride back in gear, or whatever. And um, Timothy Dalton, who likes Timothy Dalton? Me. Can't can't stand that dude. Like like worst <laughs> Bond ever. <laughs> you sure? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we all know that uh, that uh, Henrik. Uh, Dearly loves Timothy Dalton in the role, or something so, so like that. I so, so I do. So I do. The dude is like the most underappreciated Bond actor in the history of Bond actors. He was ahead of his time, or so they say. He was. He he was. He most definitely was ahead of his time. Like it, when you watch Timothy Dalton's Bond films, you actually notice quite quickly you ma- make the discovery that. A lot of the things that people didn't like in Dalton's films is something that people are now appraising in, in Daniel Craig's movies. Wow. Yeah, so 1987, Roger Moore has Much more. hanged uh, his uh, Walter PPK. Finally. Good riddance. <laughs> he did seven and was in the role for 12 years. And on December 1985, he informed Cubby Broccoli on a one-to-one discussion that Goodbye. Which one do you prefer, guys? The Living Daylights or License to Kill? Or do you want to analyze that on the next Bond episode? Uh, 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 that's a discussion I would reserve for the, for the License to Kill episode. I think we will compare the two after we've done both films. 
Yeah, that, that is like the logical, the most typical way of doing things. That is reasonable. Th- then again, then again, this is the Flick Lab, which is al- also the podcast that st- started covering Bond films with Sean Connery and then, you know, <laughs> reached the bad Sean Connery Bond film only in the last Bond episode. We are going in a chronological order, Henry. <laughs> Fucking nobody does these films in chronological order. Like that, that, that is one of the daftest decisions you can actually make on how to cover a film franchise. Especially when oh, you really? have a gimmick like ours. It, it just, you know, the chronological order means that you start with Sean Connery and a good film, and then there is a huge gap, and then you reach Sean Connery and a bad film. We're going in a yearly chronological order. Yeah, I, I must confess, pa- partly that is also my fault that the gap appeared there, because I, I was the one who insisted that we actually go through Never Say Never Again and Not Diamonds Are Forever. Good choice. Yeah. Well, uh, Th- you, thanks you know, a bunch. My, my job was to pick the bad Bond film from Sean Connery. And and you, you guys can't argue that it wasn't bad. Yeah, it's arguably much worse than than uh, you know, Diamonds Are Forever. <laughs> yeah, so I did my fucking job. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's start checking some stuff here. Would it be scene by scene and we will cover the actors during the film? I, I, I sense a clusterfuck in the making, so why not? Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much. We we try to we try to respond to listener feedback. <laughs> try. <laughs> try. <laughs> the, the success rate hasn't been exactly one hundred percent. Right. So Do you guys still have your one listener in Siberia? In Serbia, sir. Serbia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. There there were a lot of plans on how to pull off the new James Bond film with the new actor. When they were writing the script, they still didn't have a 007 for a long time. Only un- until the script was completely finished. And unlike uh, usually assumed, this script is not written for Roger Moore. Nevertheless, much more. I would, I would say that... Uh, there is some kind of a Roger Moore hangover maybe still going on, if you want to <laughs> think it like that. You think? So there was, was a lot of kind of a confusion, or not really, how to carry on the Bond series after Roger Moore, but in the first stages, a few months after A View to a Kill, the seventh James Bond film by Roger Moore was in theaters, they started to work on the next one, and it was a kind of a young Bond concept, and it was simply called... Uh, Bond 15. This was a completely different kind of script. The story tells how Bond joins the Secret Service, he meets the current 007 called Trevor, and then during a mission Trevor dies with Bond. Later Bond is in the bad guy's base and fights a hench guy called Lafont in plane. And the bad guy is taken care of and uh, then there's uh, Betcha, who is the girl, girl in this film. Uh, Betcha Bedwell, I might add. <clears throat> Bond acquires the number 007 at the end and hears that his next mission will take him to Jamaica to investigate a man called Dr. No. Oh. But Kabi uh, vetoed the script. He thought the audience was not interested in seeing an amateur Bond who is still learning his trade. So the writers respected that decision 
and they start to work on the actual the living daylights. Cucumber sandwich. Uh, am I having an echo in here from the previous episodes? No. Oh, at the beginning of '86, the decision was made to finalize the name to the Living Daylights. This was a short story by Ian Fleming. A magazine approached Fleming and they asked if he would want to write something for their paper. And so he gave two different propositions and (laughs) the magazine said no to both. Then the third offer was a short story for the magazine from Bond. And that's what he did. And that's the one that they accepted. Afternoon to you. All right, let's take a look at the gun barrel. So this is uh, the artist Binder's last gun barrel. And according to optical cameraman Alan Church, this is also the last optically done gun barrel. After that, they go digital. Oh. Yeah, I, I wouldn't have thought that in License to Kill you have a digital uh, composition, but apparently, if you believe this guy. Then we get to M's flying office. There is a mission for the agents that is to approach Gibraltar from the air and uh, take control of the radar installations. B.J. Worth is back as the stunt coordinator. As we have discussed before, he worked on Moonraker to do the freefall stunt. And the high cost of renting the $62 million C-130 Hercules for this scene forced the stunt crew to, to get everything right on the first go. and No pressure then. They did, according to plan, but they later went and did additional jumps from a helicopter to get more satisfactory parachute openings closer to the rock, which is the Gibraltar's main attraction. Only attraction. To get a more exciting shot. (laughs) What? Only attraction. Fatal attraction. In fact, in the earlier drafts of the script, the film doesn't start here at all. It starts in Moneypenny's office and then moves to M's office where they get the assignment to go to Gibraltar and then it goes to Gibraltar. So they do the no-contact wedge formation jump and we get to the exercise at Gibraltar. Have you guys been at Gibraltar? I have. <laughs> well, that, that explains to me why you so much like this one. <laughs> <laughs> well, my great-granddad was from Gibraltar. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I did some couchsurfing back in 2013. I was there for three weeks. And uh, by accident, I happened to be there as long as John Glenn was there before they got the idea for the scene. Oh. It's a wonderful location. It's so small. So for people who don't know, that's uh, UK territory. And it has a border with Spain, obviously. Frederick Water plays 004. He looks like George Lazenby. It's the guy who is trying to get from the rock to the upper part to do the climbing. The stuntman Terry Forrestal was supposed to first play the scene out, but they couldn't get much of acting out of him, so they called Frederick Water, who just left a note in his flat that the baby is at the neighbor's gone to Gibraltar, and the wife was left alone. They made a lot of uh, additions to Gibraltar. They added extra aerials, added part wire, radar dishes to add some effect. And the uh, enhancements attracted the Soviet attention. They sent a spy trawler to investigate what is going on. Wow. 
we have a quite a dramatic introduction of Bond. Most definitely the best introduction since Sean Connery. Timothy Dalton, Henrik. Who the hell is this guy? He's pretty unknown in actor circle-wise. But basically, uh, what to drop from Timothy Dalton? I, I, I guess the first one would be the spandex and underpants sci-fi classic Flash Gordon. And then, then the short Nazi stint in The Rocketeer. And lately been appearing in comedies like Hot Fuzz and... <laughs> Do you say Hot Fuzz? And doing quite, quite a lot of... Lot of TV, like Doom Patrol and Penny Dreadful. And then some really unknown film also in his resume called The Lion in Winter. <laughs> yeah, that too, that too. Which he did share with Anthony Hopkins and Audrey Hepburn and these other big name celebrities. I don't know, I, I, I wouldn't say most well known from his filmography outside of the two James Bond films, but Still, yeah, pretty qualified cast. Yeah, Dalton in the role of Bond seems like the kind of guy that knows what he's doing, like an actual agent, and that was important for him to get it right. Dalton also reportedly, according to the DP, Alec Mills wanted to be a Roger Moore and Sean Connery, but with his own twist. That's kind of a surprising to hear. I don't know, maybe they should have just cast Pierce Brosnan for the role, if that was what they were going at. <laughs> yeah. Dalton, uh, according to Marion Dabo, he wants to approach his acting from the human aspect instead of sexiness, etc. And definitely his performance here, or regularly, is very honest. You can see it from his eyes and everything that he does. He is the angriest Bond up until this date, like in, in, in the franchise. He's more like, uh, I don't know, uh, what's the word? Human being. Do you think that something was lost in the performance of Dalton in the sense that, well, Bond is never supposed to show that he is hurting or that he is uh, struggling, right? But Dalton shows that he is struggling. Do you think that should be part of the character in some way or not at all or something in between? I think I will... Like, go with 50-50. A little bit, but not so obviously. Well, we've had that before. We've had that before on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah. Haven't we? So it, it's nothing new. Mm. Yeah, and me me on my end, the, the whole Bond shouldn't show that he's hurt or shouldn't show any emotion at all. Like the Ian Fleming's Carver Bond code that he... Applied to that character, I never actually appreciated the code that much. I think that Bond is much more interesting as a character once he actually has an emotional side, which he shows every so often in the films. Yeah. They also wanted to make Dalton a little bit more modern. And Dalton wanted it himself, not wearing as many suits as before, and wanted to make it a little bit more comfortable for him to wear. Desmond Llewellyn was also happy that his scenes were easier to pull off, as the prankster known as <clears throat> Much More wasn't there anymore, changing his lines as a joke on the set. So Desmond said of Dalton the following that uh, he makes Bond believable and gives him more depth. Death? Yeah, depth. 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 I thought you said death. No, depth. 
Okay, this got weird fast. <laughs> uh, considered and tested for James Bond were Lewis Collins, topped fan polls, but did a pretty unfavorable screen test for Octopussy and was off the list. And there was Trevor Eve, not impressive enough to go forward. Sam Neill and Michael Wilson and many others were happy with his performance, but Gabby wasn't so sure that they had found the right bond, so search continued with, for example, Anthony Hamilton. But uh, he was a homosexual, and I guess that was the breaking point. I don't know. Mel Gibson agreed to play Bond, according to some sources, for one film, and reportedly would have continued if the first film would have made over a hundred million dollars domestically. But Copy was not interested to get a very famous actor for the role, Search continued. Mel also was too short to play Bond, according to Cobby. I'm too crazy. Aussie <laughs> uh, actor Brian Brown was approached, but was not interested to get tied down with a series relying on effects. Okay, good for him. Aussie TV actor Andrew Clark made a favorable impression for John Glenn and was a front runner for some time, but became frustrated with slow casting and fucked off. Then we have even more Aussies. Aussie male model Finley Light tested as well. But uh, his agent was such of a blabbermouth that he told everything to the media already. And the media read that Finley Light has been already selected as the next James Bond, but he wasn't. And uh, Finley Light disappeared. His light went off. And then we have Christopher Lambert and also Lambert Wilson, one of Cubby's favorites. And finally, Pierce Brosnan, who already had signed to play Bond, but on the last day of Remington Steel, the 60-day contract option was activated, and he was requested, or, well, forced back to to do another season for Remington Steel. Otherwise, he would have faced a $20 million breach bill, had he done Bond instead. And the producers got greedy and wanted to milk everything of its worth, that they had the future Bond on their hands in Remington Steel, and Brosnan was of course devastated, he had already kinda shit-talked his members of the crew in Remington Steel, and wanted nothing to do with that project, probably. But um, as a response to this, Gabby had to cancel the deal, and kept on searching. It is an interesting tidbit of information, because there, there, later on, in, in with Golden Eye, there happens kind of the the roles are switched once again with Brosnan and Dalton. Yeah, I'm quite that he got the chance to play it finally. One could argue that Pierce Brosnan was a little bit too young still in 1987, at least looks-wise, to play James Bond. Yeah. Hmm. Finally, a guy who had turned Bond down like twice was again on their radar. And he was asked if he was interested back in the On Her Majesty's days, but... He deemed himself too young to play the role. He was never offered the role at the time. It was more like, uh, hey, are you, are you maybe interested in this thing? And he said, eh, eh. and um, But he was asked again in 1981. In uh, 1969 or 1968, this actor deemed himself too young for the role. And in 1981, when it was unclear if more would continue on the role for, for your eyes only, they contacted him again. But uh, then a more agreed to return for much more. Dalton had to turn it down initially again. Due to his busy schedule in 1986 when he was asked to do Daylights. 
But the producers were willing to compromise this time after the Brosnan chaos and they delayed the filming so they could get Dalton and so they did. Alright, we have landed on Gibraltar. Yeah, I've walked these same paths that Dalton is running in and probably the same paths that the truck is taking, but the, most of the roads look so similar that it's hard to tell where you've been going. I actually, to this day, I can't tell if I've been walking on these particular paths. They were probably all shot in the military installation site, which is fenced off. Being there, personally, I would say that there isn't much room to roam around. It's like impossible for the car to keep going on a straight line like that. There should have been already a lot of turns and they would have not been able to keep up the same speed in this situation. Also had to say a little bit of a hi for the monkeys. They are still there. According to a famous saying, the monkeys of the Gibraltar will, will stay there as long as the British will stay there. I, I, is that saying trying to mean that the British are the monkeys? Is it tra- drawing comparisons here? Ooh, ah, 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 ah. Okay, I think that answers. Yeah, that was really ret- that was really retarded. I tried to make a monkey noise. I didn't know if you guys realized that or not. <laughs> that settles not- it. Yeah. Thank you. One driver chickened out from the driving in Jeep because the roads were too narrow. But uh, Dalton didn't chicken out. He was actually doing some of the stunt shots, at least for the close-ups. He was there on top of the car, risking everything. There is a lot of editing wizardry here. We are filming like 99% on Gibraltar, but uh, when the jeep gets off the cliff, that shot is from lively old England, from uh, near Nuffield Pool. Do you know Nuffield Pool, Tom? Nope. It proved to be extremely complicated to shoot due to the English weather, not matching up with Gibraltar weather, so the crew had to sacrifice themselves a little bit and uh, wait while... wait. Precipitation. Precipitation was taking place, correct. And they had to sacrifice themselves and spend a couple of days in a local bars. The shot was filmed finally at 48 frames per second to be sure to capture everything. On second try, the the Bond dummy that uh, is supposed to get out of the car got decapitated. Yeah, but they finally got it correctly. And uh, this is also, uh, unfortunately, a location in England where the suicides go high. It's a suicide hotspot where people tend to drive off the cliff and kill themselves. So Bond film goes there and drives itself off the cliff. As well, yeah. (laughs) 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 Someone could make the argument that that is uh, just a little bit inconsiderate. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a little bit... um, They jump off the cliff in Gibraltar and then continue the descent in UK. And finally, when Dalton's Bond has gotten off the Jeep, they're filming that in Morocco. So it's a bit of a clusterfuck. It's almost like the production designer simply just wanted to go crazy and do it as hard and as impossible as possible. <laughs> Linda the boat girl, Linda Collar, who turned her name into Kel Tyler for during this film and actually is credited as Kel Tyler, then changed her name to Belle Avery. Yeah, she is the lady. This is filmed in Tangier. So yeah. in the early drafts, Bond lands on a beach instead and Greets some early morning sunbathers. 
Then on a patio of a posh villa with a girl and a butler, this scene plays uh, more or less the same as we see it in the film. So fetch another class, Trevor, and better make that an hour. So you do imply that uh, all the kind of nonsensical parts of the opening are still even in even in that version of the script. Well, come on, you can pick your favorite nonsense here. Well, the, 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 the first one would kind of be the fact that they are infiltrating the radar installation in, in Chip Powder. And the radars of the radar installation can't pick up the huge fucking airplane that actually flies over the radar in installations. Uh, it's, a, it's an exercise, Henrik. Well, exercise, exercise, you know... Radar installation still should pick up a huge goddamn airplane if you are trying to infiltrate it. Like, exercise-wise, I, I think this is kind of the worst possible way to have the opening briefing of your exercise and getting your guys on the zone. Uh, come on, come on, come on. You, you, I, I think you will love this film forever and ever and ever if we, if we could have just delivered this line in the film from the earlier drafts like it's so boring when nothing but stuffed shirts or gigolos if only there was a real man around and then bond lands and she continues my prayers have just been answered gwen yeah but how, how can it be so boring if there is cars exploding in the air <laughs> yeah you you would kind of kind of think that that would be like super <laughs> exciting that oh my god there's explosions coming on <laughs> That's a very good point, which I have never even thought about. Or, or, or the fact that the car is being loaded with <laughs> with boxes of ammunition, they all go off, and Bond has just, you know, escaped the jeep himself, which means that he is still in the explosion radius altogether. Like, in, in, in the final version of the film, Bond manages to escape the whole mega-ass explosion without a scratch. The only downside is that he's... Parachute catches some debris and catches fire, but that's about it. In in reality, Bond's leg should have blown off. Maybe. Maybe it caught fire inside the jeep, you know. There was already fire there. No, no, no. The film film clearly actually showcases you that it it is the bomb, the explosion debris that gets the, the parachute. So that just shows you that some part of the jeep was hitting the actual parachute and not Bond himself. Yeah, but precisely, that, that is the main problem here. That the jeep should have most definitely hit Bond himself. Like, it's it's not a small explosion. The explosion radius, therefore, has to be quite a big one. And Bond's distance from the jeep before the explosion is not that far. Ah, it's fine. It's fine. But how did you feel about the... Won't you join me? Better make that too. I, I, I took it once again. Co- completely nonsensical Bond bullshit moment. I kind of have felt before. I don't always get this feeling, but sometimes I get the feeling that, that this particular Linda scene is something that is more likely to be seen in Never Say Never Again. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, well, when, when it comes to Bond, and when it comes to Bo- James Bond and his debriefings, the dude has always been, quite frankly, the whole embarrassment of the intelligence community because, like, no matter what happens, no matter is he being given a mission or has he just witnessed something extremely important, it would be utmost importance that he debriefs his 
superiors about it immediately, but always takes his lazy ass time to actually get debriefing done, no matter what modern appliances are at his disposal. Like, in, in this scene, he has a goddamn phone, he has a phone connection to his supervisors, to M, and he could simply just state through the phone call that something has happened and he needs to be picked up immediately so that he can give his debrief, which you would think that would be kind of the main priority here, seeing how two double O's have been assassinated. But but no, that fucker once again takes his two goddamn hours to get his job done. <laughs> like his, his colleagues has, have just been killed. His workmates in the hands of his w- one of his colleagues, his third workmate. And the dude has the audacity to take two hours to break the news. That, that is a very good point. I mean, you are really good at putting these things into perspective. Like, there, there is so much going on and it's so exciting that once you get to the ship, you have kind of forgotten that, oh, there's bodies lying around <laughs> in Gibraltar. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and, and that kind of is... Seeing how there has been an explosive car and they have driven through you know, civilian spaces. Yeah. Like, use the public roads, which are being operated also by civilians, and they have made a whole mess with that one stand which they drove through. The whole exercise in itself has been a major cock-up already. Like, at at this point, the the main talking point in Chip Router will be, what the fuck just exploded? And you would think that, once again, the British Secret Service would be kind of extremely interested in getting the information as soon as possible so that they can actually take some appropriate measures when handling the public relations in response to, you know, having your chip blowing up in Gibraltar. But this is uh, the final John Barry soundtrack for James Bond. I think he gets the score for the right Bond actor this time. I mean, the, the John Barry sound is more serious and I felt that in many cases for Roger Moore it just wasn't suitable at all even though it was great music but I think here everything lines up with the music and the bond perfect marriage soundtrack wise this is one of the more maybe captivating of the bond soundtracks and with that sentiment I do also include the actual theme of the film yeah I I, I do freely admit that I have had some problems with for example the theme songs of the previous Bond films. Like, for example, Moonraker, which I didn't like at all. But I do think that when it comes to The Living Daylights, the theme song, song is actually one of the better ones of the franchise. Even though there is kind of this weird effect you get from listening to it because it's so completely different from the way how the themes were sung before this one. It's quite different. It's uh, one of my favorites, for sure. If not the favorite, but it feels like these favorites go like back and forth sometimes. I'm very much fond of the the one that people usually don't really care about, which is the all-time high for Octopussy. Yeah, in my books, it has always been in the kind of okay category. And Tom, what are your favorite uh, James Bond tunes, title sequence songs? Probably License to Kill, which is just fantastic, you know. Yep. And Goldfinger comes comes a close second. And I I I take it that that means the diamonds are forever. Nope. It's actually one of my favorites. The first twenty seconds of that song, especially, are 
complete gold or diamond. Speaking strictly song-wise. Okay. This is the second last Morsebinder title sequence. Uh, <laughs> I think this title sequence has a lot of character. It has uh, great lighting and colors. But I feel it's a little bit disjointed and it's not flowing as well as some of the others. And nevertheless, I like it a lot. It was kind of the uh, silhouettes didn't really complement the song very much. Just, just the entire video didn't complement the song. Yeah. It was very catchy. Yeah. A little... But not my favorite. Kind of slow. Didn't really get me going that much. Yeah. Kind of disjointed. It, it is. I, I, I'm with you on the a bit, bit disjointed. Like there, there is a lot of stuff I, that I like in the o- opening title sequence. I like a lot of the transitions that happen, especially in the early part of the title sequence. Like there, there is the lady with the sunglasses, then they zoom, zooming into the sunglasses. It switch into the cars' headlights, and inside the cars' headlights, there is another lady, and then it follows that lady. But at the same time, once it's not doing this kind of a camera trickery, I do feel that it, at worst, the title sequences are also a bit lazy, to my taste. Like, there's a lot of shots that are simply, you know, a hand holding, holding point 38, or just, you know, some random woman lying around, and I, I still am not too excited about the you know the, those shots, I I still think they are a bit too easy and kind of something that you see way too many times in in James Bond films. Yeah, I really also like the lady with the what it appears to be long legs and sunglasses, and the camera is moving there. And I like the moment when the revolver is on the right corner of the image and it's shooting some kind of a shadowy lady figure there. And of course, the lady in the ending inside the champagne glass. Who could forget? That, that, yeah, that also is pretty good transitioning. What I maybe like the least about this is the 007 logo floating throughout the image when the champagne glass is appearing. Yeah, that that was maybe a bit too much. Yeah, it it's kind of feels often that, at least in this title sequence, it's it feels that uh, Morris Pinder... Like, God bless the guy for the artistry, but it seems that he started to work on this a little bit too late and ran out of time, and let's just throw this in. Kinda, yeah, but then again, I I can't really vouch for that, because that is something that has been a running problem with me and the Bond title scenes. Because, uh, like, a large number of of the Bond title uh, title scenes are simply and only about silhouettes of semi-naked ladies... And that, to me, has always been kind of the easy way to go when it comes to Bond title scenes. Like, that that doesn't take too much imagination, you know, to come up with idea that, hey, let's, let's, let's have a lady who stands sideways to camera and she's naked. Yeah. I always have liked more about the shots that has something more going on, on in them. Like, like in here with the transitions... Or those moments where you, like in these title sequences, you have that shot of the lady who is standing in the water, he's holding the 38, and she's aiming something underneath the water surface. Yeah. And you get this shadow play on her skin. I That, once again, I thought was pretty clever, pretty artistic, but it, it's always been kind of a mixed bag. Like, you, you get something that is really inventive, and then you get something that is really lazy. Yeah. 
Or is it lazy or is it just the fact that we're looking at the old film where the beauty standards for title sequences were a little bit more, shall I say, analog? It could be also be that because something that you've noticed when you follow the franchise is that the closer we get to the modern times, the kind of a more crazy and more imaginative they also what happens in the title sequences get. Yeah, more spinner at this point. Maybe could have been already said to be kind of the old James Bond family. And maybe it was time for something else because, well, honestly, the time of Morris Binder playing with uh, these analog optical composites was starting to be over. And once we get to Goldeneye, you know, the, it's a completely different ball game. So I don't think Morris Binder could have even pulled that off where he actually alive again in 95. Okay, but we get to... The Koskov's defection scheme. All these concert and opera scenes were filmed in Schönbrunn Palace in Vienna, in the Schios Theater. Napoleon Bonaparte used to have Schönbrunn as his base. That's interesting. Yeah, they took full advantage of that for this film. Over 250 extras used for the concerts. Funnily, the conductor couldn't understand why he was needed to be filmed for, for only a few seconds. Like, he would start and then keep playing and was pissed off. Why, why, why don't you keep filming me? But that's the, that's the way it goes. And Henrik, who the hell is Thomas Whitley? Saunders, head of Section C, Vienna. Oh, he's an asshole. <laughs> You're bloody late. But, but then again, you know, Saunders is someone who actually takes his job seriously and he, he does have a good point when it comes to Bond's antics and, and the way how Bond approaches his job. This isn't a fancy dress ball. Oh, well, then what is it? Okay. But the, yeah, there is a friendly competition between Saunders and Bond. Saunders is the cocky agent who has probably served for some time for MI6 and... Bond is ordering him around, like, bring the chair, bring the gun, bring my underpants. So Saunders doesn't like that, but Bond doesn't give a fuck. Yeah, the producers had seen Wheatley in a British brewery executive 1985 TV miniseries poking fun at advertisers. In honest, decent and true, producers loved him for that. Then we have Mariam Dabo in the role of Kara Milovi. Yeah, outside of role as Kara Milovi here, I guess... Me love her very much. I, I, that, that, that is a clever play with names. But yeah, Mariam, pretty well known for the way better than, than its reputation alien pregnancy film Extro. <laughs> yes, <laughs> somebody mentioned that, yes. So well, I don't have how, to. How, how, how could you not <laughs> ma- ma- mention that? It's like, well, also because in Mariam's resume, that is kind of one of the highlights, one of the more seen movies. Outside of Extra, resume is a lot of foreign films. Had also been doing a German movie, which collapsed. It ran out of budget and was in the middle of production. Thereafter, United Artists offered this girl for the producers of Bond. She connected with Barbara Broccoli and then Cubby. And uh, this is the first film where Barbara Broccoli becomes the associate producer. And nowadays, of course, she is the producer with Michael G. Wilson, the stepson of Cubby Broccoli in the Bond franchise. Dabo actual playing is actually not heard in this film, which is not a surprise for anyone. There was a double that was doubling for Dabo in the close-ups of the cello. 
AIDS crisis was also rampant at the time and it influenced the decision to have a monogamous relationship in the film, which is quite special to this day. I mean, we have less insert body parts here than in On Her Majesty's, which was also supposed to be kind of a one lady movie, but it isn't. A Glynis Barber from Dempsey and Makepeace Police Drama TV series was almost cast as Kara, and the other runner was Jenny Seagrove. Actually, the, at least Glynis Barber looks almost exactly like Mariam Dabo. John Glenn described Mariam Dabo in her role as the most sophisticated Bond lady since Diana Rigg. When John Glenn and Mariam Dabo met for the first time, John Glenn made a weird joke. When she entered the office, she had very colorful dress on, and then John Glenn went like, what is this? Is this from your grandmother's tablecloth or something? <laughs> but <laughs> I don't know where that was coming from, but um, fortunately, Mariam Dabo just laughed it off, and they had a good laugh about it, and the interview went well. Started cello lessons five weeks before shooting, so some effort there. I've, I've also been here, it's in Vienna, this exterior of the theater, so Bond's contact in the bookstore is an elderly guy called Hallas, that is in the early drafts, and then meets later Saunders there. Then we have Joron Krabe. What do we know about him? You you mean the guy who plays Costco? The yep. not bad guy of the film. What do you mean by that? He's too nice, yeah. He, Very he, nice. Yeah, he, he, A, he's Dutch, and B, he's kind of known for playing villains. Like, for example, the Dolph Lundgren original The Punisher live-action film, where he was the head of some mob, and later on also appearing with Harrison Ford in The Fugitive and Ocean's 12, also playing Russian diplomat in Transporter 3, one of the shitty sequels. Yeah, Yaron Grabe is uh, like a always upbeat kind of a character, like in this film... His son is a TV host in the Netherlands. Yeah, the writers had plenty full of real-life material to pull from to write the script. For example, Iran was a hot topic and so was Vitaly Yurchenko. It's a Russian spy who faked the defection to the US and returned to the USSR only three months later. The details are a little bit fuzzy. Like, why did he leave the USSR? Was it planned out or was it not? So... Yeah, in the script, um, it's clear that Kara is not aiming towards Koskov. She's clearly not pointing the gun directly at him. And this is something that you don't see in the film. Not that it really matters, because we find out that the, there were planks there in use. Escape. Bond completely ignores Saunders' escape route, placing Koskov in the truck. And uh, such of a shitty plan it was. Like, really, Saunders. I mean, putting him into the trunk through the border... Like, that's literally the first place where they look. Then again, in, in Saunders' defense, it like how the, the the way how the escape actually plays out in the film, it kind of lay, lays weight to the theory that the whole MI6 was in on Bond's plot simply to make Saunders look bad. You are right, actually, because it was already pre-planned to use the Our Pipeline. Yup. And, 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 and Q is waiting at the other end, and the whole crew... So, they completely fucked him over. Looking at MI6 from the Bond film lens, it really makes it appear so that MI6 most definitely is a healthy workplace. (laughs) 
Yeah, Saunders would have fucked up completely the entire defection. He he would have, would have been completely busted if Saunders would have taken his route with Koskov. And Koskov is risking a lot here to deliver the message to the British. So they use the enemy's pipeline to smuggle their own man. Julie T. Wallace is playing the girl she played in the lives of the She-Devil. And uh, the early script is talking about, quote, monumental cleavage which we see here. <laughs> Q, Q, oh my god. Q is played by Desmond Llewellyn once again. A double was used in some scenes for Q when he's running up the stairs. I don't think you actually see the double anywhere because it kind of cuts away, but um, he, he had actually his angina tablets, but he needed to only do a couple of steps anyway for the film. And he does take some pills during the film as well. I was always wondering what's going on there. In early drafts, they do not actually use the pipeline. They they use a, a mini submarine where Q is waiting for them to pick them up. <laughs> uh, yeah, but um, but how could they use a submarine? Because it's from Russia to Austria, so it's landlocked. The, yeah, that's good that they changed that. I'm, I'm going to keep embarrassing this film throughout this episode by bringing up these early drafts for everyone's enjoyment. Yeah, we have a moment where Saunders and Bond are talking about the mission and uh, John Glenn was really happy, the director, that uh, he got the mean and moody Dalton in the car. Your orders were to kill that sniper. Stuff my orders. (laughs) Also, Saunders is on fire there. It's a good scene. It is, and it is also one of the sequences that kind of takes you into the movie. Like the the differences be- between Dalton's Bond and and the previous two 007 kind of, they become obvious in the nightly ni- sniper scene, which is kind of most realistic that James Bond has ever been this far. Yeah, then we get to Q and Moneypenny scene. Moneypenny has been changed as well. Now she's been played by Caroline Bliss, related to the famous musician. Uh, Selena Scott was also wanted for the role, 80s BBC host. But she didn't want the role because Moneypenny never gets the man. <laughs> I mean, looks pretty much the part, but answer was no. Cobby himself also made the call to Louis Maxwell, the uncomfortable call that she would not return as Moneypenny. I thought this played out completely differently, but apparently it wasn't like this that I've been thinking for many years that... When Moore left, then Maxwell decided to quit the series. No, 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 no. It's more dramatic than that. Maxwell got the news that she is not returning as Moneypenny, and Maxwell was disappointed, but was expecting for this moment that a 35 or 40-year-old Bond shouldn't make goo-goo eyes at her. So she just suggested another scenario, that maybe in the film, instead of Moneypenny, in her office is a Miss. Twinkle toes, and when Bond enters M's office, M turns around in his chair to reveal actually her. It is Miss Moneypenny. Instead of Robert Brown, we now have Louis Maxwell's Moneypenny, now promoted to M. Cobby actually liked the idea, but the writers said that M has been traditionally been a man. <laughs> and uh, then Maxwell saw this as uh, sexual discrimination. Since Traditionally, the Prime Minister of Britain had been a man too, so what's the problem? Cubby told Maxwell that everything is being changed and uh, they will not have her in the film. Everything apart from getting 
A Lady M, which they did get to in 95, in Goldeneye, though. In the Moneypenny scene, there's also ass slap. <laughs> so their old habits are still dying very hard. Not only the ass slap, but this se- sequence also is the first cue scene of, of the film, and it, it does carry the bit uncomfortable cultural aspect since one of the interventions that Q shows Bond is the Keto Blaster, which is problematic in, in a sense that it kind of a, it does combine he- heavy weaponry with, with something that became associated with the American urban society, and in particular the African American and Hispanic youth in the US. Okay, well, I never thought about it from that direction. I just thought that, well, it's a ghetto blaster and ghetto blaster. Yeah, I'm I'm fairly certain that also the makers of the of the film thought it only from that direction, and it was added in the film only to tie the film into something that was hip and cool back in the days. But there there is also the unfortunate cultural aspect that comes with the ghetto blaster itself. We get to the safe house. The very first shot for the film was a close-up of a parrot that Diana Rigg once owned. She played uh, the leading ro- lady role in On Her Majesty's. So the parrot, Chrome, has appeared in at least uh, 1976, The Pink Panther Strikes Again, in For Your Eyes Only, where it, it reveals a major plot point there, which is fu- uh, funny actually because... When Diana Rigg owned the parrot and she was exercising or training her parts of the script for the film on Her Majesty's in her flat, the parrot would learn some of the dialogue and when Diana Rigg would have visitors, the parrot would be parroting those lines, which should be a top secret. Here the parrot is once again. Then we have Andreas Wisniewski as Necros. The name in the, for the henchman was first Franco, then actually Sanchez, and then Necros. And Sanchez, of course, was recycled for the next film as the main antagonist. Wisniewski himself, once again, being one of those actors who has, I guess, most well-known for his bad guy sidekick roles, like being the Kalashnikov guy in Die Hard and and one of the henchmen in Mission Impossible and later on a henchman in Mission Impossible Coast Protocol. Oh, yeah. Yeah, was funny to find a connection between Die Hard and The Living Daylights. Yeah. Here he is again, kind of doing the same thing. Necros is using the American accent uh, as a cover to appear, only only as the stupid milkman, the kind of the bloody yank. Did you see this, this as racist? That now because I'm talking the Texas accent or whatever, then I'm just stupid and they can let me in. Did you read it like that? I actually missed that point. Now that you word it out, I can actually see that where, where the argument is is coming from, and you might be onto something there. Yeah. Hey, mate, watch it. Things like that. I, 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 on my end, I was just way too enthusiastic seeing how almost straight out of the Hitman video games, the Milkman scene was. Hmm. Like, the whole, whole concept of him passing some random NPC, the, the original milkman, then garroting the milkman and stealing his uniform to blend into their safe house. Which is almost, you know, spot-by-spot walkthrough how you can breach the second level in Hitman 2, The Silent Assassin. But, um, James, James, I will never forget what you did for me. 
we get to Costco's briefing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, the kissing was not in the script, but uh, it was uh, Yaron's idea. Like, let's do this because I'm a Russian, so let's do it correctly. In the script, it was just a hug. He's a very effeminate character. You don't really expect KGB agents to be effeminate and to show any kind of affection for yours. <laughs> yeah, well, well, obviously, he's Russian. It's a conflicting character. Like, uh, he's kind of happy-go-lucky, like apparently he's in real life, and then again, he's a baddie doing horrible things, but also he's kind of on the sidelines and never gets into any physical contact with Bond, except the kissing, of course. He is fairly flamboyant, isn't he? And the actor Yoron Krabe's accent is not very Russian, is it? It's not very Russian at all. His accent is not Russian. Yeah, Kara. I don't know what it is, but it's not Russian. But yeah. I think that, But the actor's from Holland, though. So. He's talking about North African Trade Convention that is supposedly working as a cover for Koskov to make the new directive. But um, it's actually a trade convention, as far as we know. Koskov has very extravagant tastes for someone who just had come out of Russia, I guess you could say. Or maybe not. He also knows what is a Bollinger RD, the best. Yeah, well, he is is a rather high-ranking official in, in the so- Soviet power structure. So in that sense... It, it You could kind of believe that he has actually gotten the better stuff even in Soviet Union. Yeah, then once again he escapes, but to the opposite direction, or that's what they want the British to believe. And we have the kitchen fight scene with the stunt actor. It's very very well done. We have a stunt actor and we have ex-ballet dancer, which is Andreas Wisniewski. Pulling it off spectacularly, of course... In the middle of the fighting, he actually knocked out the stuntman because he was so inexperienced with this stuff. The Koskov plan is completely wacko, of course. Like, Koskov takes the crazy risk of fake defection and then risks being caught uh, due to Saunders' shitty planning and the Necros risks his life to break into the safe house alone and they escape with a UK Red Cross helicopter, what looks like that, and nobody finds them before they leave for Morocco for some miraculous reason. The, the plan is completely crazy when you think about it. The, the risks are crazy, but but uh, outside of the risks that Costco and Necros take here, I, I would almost make the case that this is one of the better and more thought-out plans that the Bond villains have in the franchise. Absolutely, this is. Uh, I would say that this is the most, well, apart from Diamonds Are Forever, which was just uh, complicated for no reason at all. But we have a lot of layers in this plot, and it m- might be the best uh, thought-out plot in the entire series. In Pre- that sense. Pretty much, because some, something that actually comes into play with, with Costco's fake hijacking here is the, basically the whole main plotline or the main twist that this has. Like The bad guys are trying to fool MI6 by making it appear that they are MI6 is being and the 00 agents are being targeted by the Soviet anti-spy program Smirtspionem. And that is something that they first lay out, make an off-handed notion in, in the opening sequence, where a part of the task of the traitorous double-O agent was to leave behind simply a piece of paper that says Smirtspionem. And now they are implanting Costco 
inside MI6 to give them the false story that Smirtspionem is in action and what what it means and what it all all about and Costco is there to implant in the MI6's head that their real target is Pushkin and their problems will go away once MI6 assassinates Pushkin and once again getting Pushkin out of the way is actually what the bad guys want all along. So there is this setting up the first clue and then giving the false image of what that clue means in order to get the MI6 to do something that you want them to do. And that that is, that is plotting that you don't that often see the bad guys do, like having this multi-layered, multi-step plot. Uh, definitely not, and I would be lying if I said that I got the plot when I was watching this for the first time. Well, first of all, I was like seven years old, but whatever the case, it's not a plot where you can understand all its variables for on the first go. Nope. Yeah, this, this is almost like, you know, they finally decided to make a James Bond film where there is actual spy plot going on. I would... Uh, criticize it a little bit in the sense that there are places where it's kind of very clear you can follow it very easily then when you get for example into the diamonds and opium exchange scene and they're giving you this information with super rapid fire like take this take that take that and oh by the way also this so just comes out of the nowhere and bond seems to know everything at this point that it does bond does piece together some of the major elements of the bad guy's plan kind of yeah. quite quickly on the go as they are presented to him. But uh, you could also make the argument, I guess, that um, there was no need for any goddamn defection because even in 1987 they had telephones. But I know, of course, the effect will be stronger when you defect and tell it in person. And, uh, you know, you can probably make a phone call without being tapped all over the place in, in the USSR, so... There's that, but uh, just throwing it out there. But what what is this new directive stuff after all? Because in the pre-title sequence we have already seen that uh, the smeared spionum stuff is in motion, so the guy is working for Koskov and Whitaker. And uh, what's the new directive then? It's clearly not going to be... Th- this new plan to kill American and British agents is not going into motion. After the North African Trade Convention... It is already taking place. With new directive, you meaning... When Koskov says that uh, what the point of North African Trade Convention really is, and he says that it's the new directive. And I took it that Mm. that, that's supposed to be talking about the whole smeared spiona, but it's already running, so... Like, Koskov is making making the case that Pushkin hates perestroika, and in order to destroy perestroika, he has activated the smeared spionem, to, to kind of a harm the, the USSR, the Soviet West talking disposition and the communication that, that West and, and Soviet Union would have. Yeah. Anyway, wh- what kind of a safe house is this guy's when they let a random milkman enter? Just have to wonder. No credentials, anything. He's just a replacement for an- another milkman who has been killed. Good job. Well, he's a master of accents, really. Heh, <laughs> flu. <laughs> He is that, but this is a safe house that takes the gun away from James Bond. You know, the, the well-established British secret agent. For safety reasons, and then let's completely random milkman enter without checking his credentials. Yeah. Flu. All you need. 
It, it, yeah, it, it kind of a land, lands weight on the Amazon how now uh, after Costco's hijacking, the MI6 is becoming the laughing stock of the intelligence community. Yeah. Like with, with, with this kind of a repercussions and safety measures, you would think that MI6 would kind of be used to that already. <laughs> exactly. Well, then everything explodes. They get out of the safe house and Koskov is taken by Necros and his baddie guys to the helicopter and they fly happily to, I don't know, Tangier. <laughs> but um, there they will finally be. And uh, So, it's the end briefing. Instead of Pushkin, Gogol was Bond's target in the early scripts. And that would have made for a very interesting film for the people who are familiar with James Bond films. But the thing was... Google actor Walter Gotell was already really old and the insurance that would have been needed for keep him in the film in the capacity that they wanted to, the insurance payments would have been extremely high. So it wasn't worth the trouble, especially when the guy has to fall downwards and pretend to die. And there was a little bit of a physical stuff going on there. But Bond is not too excited to take the assignment, but if it has to be done... I'd rather do it. And again, Bond goes solo and doesn't kill Pushkin. <laughs> and the key ring disorientates any normal man, except there are no normal men usually in that business. That's a really good one. This movie has a habit of making a joke and then immediately changing the moment to something else. It happens first here in the queue scene. Bond is saying, You mean, uh... And then the money penny knocks on the window... And then Q, in reaction to Bond, screams, STOP! So these two are occurring at the same time, like overlapping even. I'm not sure why. Well, okay, Moneypenny interrupts the explosion, let's say. But in later parts of the film, in the C-130 plane scene, when Bond says, he got the boot, immediately after the joke, we get to the moment where Bond notices that, okay, we're going to get distracted if I don't ascend this plane right now. So what is this movie trying to do here? Like they notice that their own jokes are not so good, so they are kind of masquerading it and then following it immediately with something else. I found it really weird. I I guess what they are aiming at is giving you the illusion that the film's world is extremely busy and that all these characters are doing some stuff of their own in the same space with, with, for example, with, with James Bond. Or with some other key character of that scene. But they are trying to make it a bit more like real life. By showing you that there is stuff constantly happening in the background. And some of that stuff is pretty hectic. Yeah, at least they are not leaving the movie hanging on some quip. Prince Charles actually visited with Princess Diana. The set, the the queue set at one point. And uh, there was the famous sugar class moment when Yaron Krabe suggested to Princess Diana that uh, maybe Prince Charles should kind of smack you with the bottle in the back of your head. And then some reporter took a photograph of that and and that became the royal <laughs> photograph of the year, actually. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> it's a famous image. Also, what might be interesting is that after shooting here, Philips wanted to have their high-tech equipment back which cost a total of an estimated $1.5 million, of which the fancy screens that you see in the Moneypenny's room there 
where you where you see the cello player and the strangulation woman. Those screams totaled that $250,000 at the time. Something that John Glenn was sad about is that uh, he has regretted having Moneypenny with glasses on here. Did it bother you? No. Not at all. No, kind of gives you the office vibe. I think it complements her face nicely. Complements her overall character nicely. And he also regretted that uh, she didn't have a more substantial role in there. And uh, you could say that you could say that in License to Kill she has even less of a substantial role. I mean, she appears for the shortest possible time on screen, but uh, she has actually quite of an effect on the overall plot. But I mean, her role is so short there. Yeah. To be quite frank, she never had a massive role in the in the previous James Bonds, anyhow. Except in the new ones. Yeah, and not 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 always for the best. Yeah. Well, now Maxwell's dream came true. They're now doing with the black money penny the things that all that she wanted to do. She wanted to get to the field and all that. I do have some problems with how how also Daniel Craigborn films handle the character of money penny, but. Overall, I'm I'm with the films, but with with giving giving Money Penny more th- things to do and making her more kind of active character of, of the film's universe. Mm. But but something that where I think that getting more Money Penny really did not pay off that well were the late Pierce Brosnan films, which yeah do give Money Penny more scenes and more screen time, but also makes Money Penny a complete goddamn buffoon. On those scenes. Depends which movie we are talking about. In Goldeneye, I think she's really fantastic. If we're talking about yeah, Die Another and, Day, and then... It, then <laughs> yeah, I'm most definitely talking about Die Another Day, where she abuses the 3D software simply to have her own erotic fanfiction going on. I guess uh, she should have VR'd another day. That That's way too meta to work as a joke on this podcast. <laughs> well... Are we ready to go to Bratislava? Bratislava! Okay, calm down. Uh, Bratislava, there's this cello exercise that Bond goes to listen to and later says that it was exquisite. But now there's the tram scene. The Vienna shooting was challenging, for example, since the tram tracks needed to be hijacked for a shoot and you couldn't push the trams to the reverse direction. You have to go the entire route and then come back. Then we get to toilet. The toilet cleaner is kind of something like the whis- whistling cleaner in On Her Majesty's, where he's whistling Goldfinger theme tune. Looks like the cleaner's boss is joining the toilet because gives this kind of an evil eye. Why are you not cleaning? Okay, then we get to Kara. Kara's flat, filmed in Pinewood, of course. There's quite a lot of stuff established here suddenly. Kara's and Koskov's relationship is suddenly established as something quite warm indeed or whatever it is you could argue that they are just related or you don't you are never really given an answer like what is going on with these two people and actually in the script it's laid out more clearly bond and kara are in the horse carriage and bond asks whether she loves koskov and then the movie goes on to explain that well Koskov helps me with a lot of things, blah, blah, blah. The implication is that it's more like Koskov is being like a good assist for her. At least Kara doesn't have those feelings for him. And 
it most definitely should have been cleared out because it's never cleared out. And then later Bond and Kara go kissing. Yeah, the film kind of gives you more the implication that, that Cosco and Kara are actually having a romantic relation. Yep. And that does, now that you mentioned it, it does kind of paint it badly later on in the film when when Kara and Bond start to have romantic feelings to each other. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Yes, but James Bond joins the Taliban, so... (laughs) (laughs) I like the performances a lot in this scene. And John Glenn said that he also loved the performances. It seems very honest and believable. Yeah. Bond dropped the gun in the river. He got the gun in the tram where the cello case was, which contained only the gun, while in the previous early drafts there was the gun and the cello, but maybe that's too much, so there was only now the gun here in the film, and then he threw it into the river, and that's the story of the gun. Kara doesn't know yet that Koskov has left the British already, and asks Bond whether they'll go to London to meet him. So, I mean, you'd think she'd know something, but she doesn't and Bond uses that to his advantage. Yeah, it's it's Bond finding a piece of evidence, drawing conclusions, and then using small lies to kind of misguide his target. And w- once again, it's it's like the movie has chosen that this time the James Bond film will be an actual spy movie. Mm. Also, P- Peter Lamont is back for his 13th Bond as production designer. Fresh after his Oscar nomination for Aliens. And uh, Terry Ackland Snow, his buddy, as an art director, is also joining. All right, phone booth. This goes a little bit differently in the early scripts from January 23rd. They escape from Kara's flat and it goes as follows. Kara goes from her flat to a cafe. There's a woman singing Kara orders coffee and a KGB man comes to sit where he can see Kara in the coffee house. Bond leaves Kara's flat, then later carries Kara's back, and outside Bond pulls out his Q-branch keychain and uses this, the skeleton key, to open the KGB man's car. Kara finishes coffee, goes outside and gets into the KGB car and drives around the corner. And the KGB man is stunned that his target has stolen his car. Now he looks for a phone booth, says that the other guy must get off the phone because he is on official business or something, and it's Bond. And he karate kicks the KGB guy and then puts him inside the booth unconscious. And Bond and Kara drive away. <laughs> but later it was changed, of course, and Aston Martin was in place of a Lada. Yeah, you can't, just can't have James Bond driving around in Lada. Yeah, uh, this is something that Cubby vetoed. We have to change this. Now the Aston Martin is a really great car, though. Ooh. Yeah, in the early full screenplays, Kara is driving the opponent's Lada and... Bond and Kara steal it, of course, and Kara is shown to be a horrible driver. She knocks down uh, some garbage cans on the way. Bond asks where she learned to drive. She replies and explains that she learned it from Georgi. <laughs> then Bond takes over. Maybe for the best that they left that out, for obvious reasons. Then they go back to pick up the cello. I really love how Kara turns Bond's head around to go collect the cello. And asks, why didn't you learn the violin? Okay, eyes chase. <laughs> like the third act is nothing more than Roger Moore hangover. I would say the second act. 
but okay. Well, the, well, well, that too, but but the idiocy in my books kind of a really hits full throttle in the in the third act. Uh, I have to get a confirmation right now. Like, is it about Whitaker or the C one thirty or what is it about? It's Afghanistan. Well, well, Whitaker himself already is pretty bad, as well as the cello sequence. But really, yep. Can't stand it. Even though I do know that it is actually physically possible to do, it still doesn't mean that you should do it. Still looks <laughs> goofy as shit when, when you put it on film. But my mind gripe, and boy, do I come back to this point repeatedly I'm sure later on in, in this episode, is, is the Afghanistan. Really? Yeah. Like that, that's the most realistic part of the film. It, no, no, it's not. It's it's the I would say that is the most unrealistic part. It's more unrealistic than Whitaker or, or the cello sequence. <sighs> this is why we should share our notes before our episode because this is extremely confusing and so out of the left field for me. <laughs> I think using a cello as a sled is pretty realistic. Like I said, like I said, it can be done. It, it is physically possible to use a cello case case as a sledge. But that still doesn't mean that you should put it put it on film. And the cello as the ski stick, is it? Yeah. On, on, on the physicality of that, I'm not 100% certain. But I, I can believe that you could do it. Let's check out that later. We have plenty of notes on that one. <laughs> so, <laughs> the entire ice chase was filmed in Weissensee in Austria. They had a plan to have an ice boat in the film but it was scrapped since it was very hard to do it due to there being a very small window of time to do it. First of all, there needs to be wind. The ice needs to be very firm, which it wasn't, even though there was minus 30 degrees. They almost lost an Aston Martin also due to the weak ice. They couldn't get the ice sailing boats even to the country because they were, quote, in Finland or something. (laughs) And they only go where the ice is good. Yeah, we're famous for that one. People were starting to get a little bit pissed off because of the bad luck during shooting and the hellish temperatures. So Arthur Wooster decided that uh, January 15th will be the Be Nice to Arthur Wooster Day. And the next day, January 16th, was Be Nice to Barbara Broccoli Day. The last shot that they filmed for the film was Marion Dabo's hand on the Aston Martin's radio. Now we get to the silly jokes. Amazing this modern safety glass. So did you cringe when you heard or... Did you like it? I cringed. I think, especially in the early drafts of this film, there are some extremely horrible jokes. But uh, in the film, they are better. But I just don't find the funny part in this. The context is missing, perhaps. Unless you're just going to kind of carry on with the earlier quotes, where Bond says, for example, must be a atmospheric anomaly. And so it's showing that James Bond... Is completely clueless of what's happening. To me, it appeared kind of like the, the way that, for some odd reason that is never explained, James Bond tries to pretend to Kara that weird spy nonsense is not going on, and he he's not using 007 gadgets and stuff like that. Yeah, I I get the feeling that Bond is trying to play the chase scene straight face. And not let Kara on to the fact that he's a secret agent and he's using secret agent stuff 
to escape the pursuers, but none of that makes any fucking sense. Like, why would Bond may keep up this facade? Yeah, especially if he's a friend of Koskov, then he's bound to have some kind of a special car, I believe, or could have. Precisely, I'm try- trying to hide your nature as a as a secret agent altogether while you are being chased by the goddamn military. Like, why? The lady is already tied into a defection plot. Yeah, and the way that these jokes don't really work, it has nothing to do with Timothy Dalton. It has everything to do that some of them are just not too good. Yeah, D- Dalton's acting does not ruin the jokes. The jokes are just abysmal, and most of all, they are unneeded. They are unnecessary mm. at this moment. Too much, too much going on. But I, I did like the salt corrosion. <laughs> it came so nonchalantly. Yeah, it is a pretty good joke. I, I, I hate it. Yeah, I don't know. I just get the feeling that this is definitely, some of these jokes are something that would have definitely been written for Roger Moore. For example, the best one maybe for that you can completely imagine for Roger Moore's mouth is I hope they're not inviting him for dinner. Yeah, altogether Living Daylights feels like this halfway transition bond. Kind of a hybrid mm. of the two verbs. You you have the mean, serious, realistic Timothy Dalton 007 spy film going on. And then you have have the quips and jokes of Roger Moore films and the more grandiose, big and epic action set piece that ties up the film at the end. Uh, you could say that the film is having a Roger Moore hangover still going on. That's okay, but you could take an alternative take on the uh, whole film. Because at the end of the day, this makes for a very interesting film. You know, you have the usual Bond action with the unbelievable tricksters. You have the stupid one-liners. But then you do have the new Dalton, Dangerous. And you do have a more grounded plot and baddies. It's about simple opium trade. Nothing too much fancy here. We're not going to the fucking moon or anything. Yeah, so- we, are, we are not trying to ignite a super race we are sim- simply trying <coughs> to buy and sell opium and weapons but that that is my kind of a main problem with the film i i like so much about the more grounded and more serious timothy dalton stuff that whenever the film tries to kind of be the james bond a- action adventure movie of the past years i would have preferred if this would have been simply two hours of of the more grounded timothy dalton 007 Perhaps, but uh, the, it's such a fine line to walk on. Like, of course, the fans want something. That's another thing. But does James Bond lose its James Bondiness at the time when you start to remove the fancy Aston Martins or the unbelievable, like the ice chase in in Hole? In my opinion, no. In my opinion, James Bond can very well work and does work e- even without the ice chase. Mm. And e- even with with the lesser use of, for example, violence, like like ha- having horrible violence happen in the film, yes, but not to have a major action set piece, which is you know tens of people shooting each other in a massive group fight scene, for example. All in all, I think the ice chase has always been for me still the the weakest part of the film because, like you said, the mood switches maybe quite a lot. Thank God they skipped over the 
Magic Carpet Ride that we get into in Tangier. Ooh, yeah. Good, good God. You could also read different kind of things for the salt corrosion. Like, did you feel that this was poking fun at her intelligence or just done for playing dumb on Bond's end? To me, it was simply done to play dumb on Bond's end. But it, yeah. it, it does make fun of Kara's presumed intelligence in that moment. Because to me, it appears almost like Bond expects that that bullshit explanation is something that Kara will buy for some odd reason. Yeah, just, just kind of having fun at the expense of the lady a bit. Yeah, yeah, and the, the, the whole whole stunt of trying to make her convinced that nothing odd is happening, that that is the, everything that goes around them is completely logical and natural. So during a script conference, John Glenn told about his great idea, and uh, people were skeptical, including Gabby, but... Uh, then they tested it out at the MGM studio and uh, seems that two people can fit inside the cello case, so it was all good and greenlit. But they noticed that you cannot uh, make it go in direction without the skis under it, so they inserted skis to avoid the rolling around effect. Dabo didn't like the cello case ride at all, and she was the one who had to you know, control it a bit. She had some kind of a control switch. The level of funny, of course, when they're being followed by the gunmen to the border with the Austrians, totally clueless of what's going on. It's just the typical USSR stuff. I thought that was pretty funny. I I, I thought the whole sequence was kind of, once again, too stupid. (laughs) It is more toned down than all the gadgetry bullshit that Bond pulls off with his car. Well, Bond Bond on a cello Stiga, yeah, it's very grounded, actually. Uh, yeah, compared to the car, it's very grounded, uh, and like like you said, it is physically possible to do. You can use the case as a sledge, as they proved. But it, it still is, in the end, the scene is spawned sledging away from the entire army with a case. It's spawned on a sledge, escaping an army. That That is what's happening. Yeah. And it ends with one of the jokes. As a nice contrast, we jump from Austrian Alps straight into Tangier. We get to Vienna. Bond and Kara are taking a hitchhike and then scream for taxi. Something with the second bedroom is what Bond wants. Bond behaves in this film. Perhaps the f- for the first time in his whole career. That was a real surprise, yeah. It was. It was so surprising that the franchise never actually completely recovered from it. Yeah, shock treatment by Dalton. Then they're looking at the expensive dress. Don't choke. Who will pay? Georgi, of course. But uh, rather, once again, Her Majesty's government will pay for Bond's high life. For a dress that actually, at least in real life, was worth millions. And they got the approval to use it momentarily. It would actually be interesting in, in, in some Bond film to see Bond's flat. Like, see how, how 007 himself lives outside of his missions. <laughs> like, uh, uh, after this open expenditure that he he promotes in, while on the field and do, doing the missions, is it then contrasted to that his own flat is just this very small, very typical, 
low-rent apartment that has TV and fridge and maybe a coffee machine in the corner and nothing else. Like He has the average paycheck and then it, every once in a while he gets to go in the mission where he can wear, wear expensive suits and abuse Her Majesty's open bank account as he wishes. That is an interesting point. Should they show more of Bond's personal life or less? And in the Daniel Craig era, of course, they have shown that quite a lot. They have shown Bond's, whatever it was, Bond's home. Whatever the case. Yeah, yeah, the Skyfall mansion. Yeah, and I think I just don't care for it. There, there has to be some mystique for this character. I think that works the best. Yeah, yep. Then again, the Skyfall mansion itself doesn't work in, in, in Skyfall, because as Spectre points out, Bond never actually lived there since Bond got adopted very young at his age. Yeah, didn't want to know, no. There is this scene where Whittaker instructs uh, Koskov and Necros. Maybe it shows once again that Koskov is really enjoying the amenities of the Western life. He doesn't want to get out of the poolside to in- interrupt the moment with the ladies. He's called by Whittaker to discuss the fact that we should put a bullet in the head of uh, Bushkin. So we continue in Vienna. In the concert, there's Michael Wilson cameo with wife Jane. There is the quote that this girl is the only chance of getting Koskov back. While Bond is banking a lot on this lady, Koskov doesn't care about her. He wants her killed since she knows too much. But she does lead Bond to Koskov at the end of the day. He meets Kara again, only to get Bond and get her pushed away into the fill of harmonic orchestra in Siberia. We get to Prater Park. I've been there as well. Not major insights, uh, except that if you go to the Ferris wheel, don't accept to be there with your favorite lady only. It's gonna be like jam-packed, like 15 people inside at the same time. And there is a different scene in early uh, draft scripts where Kara and Bond are drinking a martini together. And uh, that's the first time that Kara is enjoying the western amenity of martini, apparently. Of course, this whole Prater Park and, uh, and the world wheel... These also feature in The Third Man. And in the film you actually have all the Bond superiors from the old age. You have Bernard Lee, you have Robert Brown, and you have Geoffrey Keane, the Minister of Defence. Yeah, keep in mind we don't know whether the girl the, is um, still in a relationship with Karkov. Karpov. Koskov. Koskov. Yeah. So yeah, if Kara is Koskov's girlfriend, why are they kissing in the Ferris wheel? Kara's... Um, Relationship to Koskov, unexplained, but they kiss. It's made to be very romantic. I I buy the moment. I don't know, if if you take Bond by his word, it also would mean that Bond has orchestrated that the Ferris wheel will get jammed with the two of them inside, which, once again, is kind of, kind of a one point for the creepy factor. It depends how you look at it. There was uh, some talk somewhere before that... Some people find it very creepy that James Bond is saying the line, don't think, just let it happen. I never took it like that. I mean, it's, it's still up to the lady as far as we know. So. Yeah, that, that it is. Like, what, what comes to the line itself, yeah, I, I didn't have major problems with the line. Where it gets majorly more creepy is in the early script, when Bond tells to Kara that they could be there all night making love. And when Kara questions doing such things on a ferris wheel, Bond says that there's a first time for everything. 
she then questions should she do this based on two days of knowing him but <laughs> but but bond says that she shouldn't think she should just let it happen oh, oh my god <laughs> oh my god that, that, that is so much more worse there was also an alternative version where it's Kara who says that we may be here all night and bond replies i hope so okay we meet saunders in the early versions, they don't even go to this bar. Bond just finds Saunders' body lying there, dead. And the idea of exploding glass door comes from the phobias of John Glenn. What, did, did Glenn often have nightmares about glass doors exploding? <laughs> he, he, he was afraid that he would get stuck inside of those glass doors someday. That, that, is, that, is, that is very precise fear. <laughs> yeah. It's not like I, I'm fear of drowning or that I, I will choke on my sleep, but I, I will get entrapped in, in inside a glass door someday. <laughs> Saunders, of course, now gives the passport of Kara, and just when you're gonna start to love this guy and his efficiency, then he dies. Yeah, he was really annoying, but I'm glad Saunders died. <laughs> <laughs> I read that Bond is especially pissed now and destroys the ball with passion. Yeah, but altogether, all I, I do like how Saunders gets off from the film, like with the trapped glass door, which once again plays, in, in my opinion, plays very closely to the same theme and feeling that you get, for example, from the Hitman game series. Bad accident back there, yeah. And I also like the following chase scene where Bond almost guns down the small kid who hasn't done anything wrong. I I love that scene. It shows his temper. Yeah, we have a little clip. Let's uh, listen to a bit of this scene right now. What happened? Bad accident back there. Did you hear? Hear from Henrik. Yes. I got the message. He's taking opium in Tangier. Henrik Telke? The Swede? <laughs> you know him. He's that bloody flick lab host. Oh. Oh. Georgi said he'd help me. How soon do we have to go? Immediately. I promised Georgi I'd get you back as soon as I could. Can't we stay here a few days? No. We're gonna lock Henrik in the sauna. First thing in the morning. <laughs> there is the one guy greeting Pushkin in Morocco by the car when he enters the car or lets the mistress enter the car. Looks a lot like Borat to me. You can check it out on some rainy day. Precipitous there. <laughs> <laughs> John Rhys Davies, of course, is playing Pushkin and played in the Raiders of the Lost Ark, also in this podcast. What else to say about John Rhys Davies? Who knows? Well, I, I, actually, nothing that we didn't already say in the in the Raiders. Mm. Virginia Hay plays Rubavitch, the mistress. Her goal was to get to the next Bond film, so the castaway photographer David James was able to organize a meeting with Bond producers, and here she is. Yeah, I'm kind of curious. Why is the girl being stripped? You know, what's the purpose of that? Yeah, some some offhanded chauvinism. <laughs> it's about yeah, titties. He, 
Yeah, he's he's using titties to distract the guard. But of course still is the a bit problematic element that Bond rushes the room and pulls the top off from the lady and uses the tits to distract the guard. Well, that was really like on the spot original fast brain action right there. It, it, it was. It, it Most definitely it was fast brain action. And granted to Bond, yeah, it, it did. And it, it is very likely that in real life also there is something that would work extremely well because most definitely the car, when he comes running into the room, the first thing he does not expect to see is almost naked lady in front of him. I mean, I think it would have been even more effective if Pushkin would have been naked there. Yeah, that, yeah that's damn true. Yeah. <laughs> Where where is the ladies undergarment? <laughs> so we get the tidbit that Koskov was about to be arrested prior to fake defection for misuse of state funds with uh, supposedly Whitaker, but that's a security matter that can't be discussed. So. Why would killing of Pushkin make the British know any better what's going on with the Koskov? Because uh, then Koskov believes the British believe him. And um, he cancelled the arms plan and his own to Whitaker and Koskov. So they must get rid of him. There's a moment where the picture freezes shortly when the guard comes to check on Pushkin and sees the breasts. There is a lot of venom in Bond's eyes, as somebody said. Timothy Dalton is the type of Bond that you can believe that he would shoot the guy. If need be. Yeah, that that is that is like like I said, this is this is one one of the more or I, I would say most angrier bonds that the franchise has. Not necessarily film wise, because Dalton takes this one degree upwards in in the next film. Dangerous Dalton. Yeah. But uh, from from the character perspective, like Timothy Dalton's. James Bond as a character is is much more angrier than, for example, Sean Connery's or Roger Moore's. Yeah, he's very violent with the head of the KGB, isn't he? You know. Yeah. Which could bite him in the ass, kind of later on after the whole episode's finished. Yes, and then we get to seal the building or whatever its name was, <laughs> and um, <laughs> Pushkin is shot by Bond. It was very clever. A clever maneuver. It's of course fake, and the magic carpet ride has been deleted in here, as well as the gorilla scene, which was in the storyboards. Thank God that was removed. Tanger, chief of security, is played by Nadim Savalha, who played Aziz Fekesh in The Spy Who Loved Me. Bond uh, succeeds in the mission, and um, uh, yeah, there was also a scene where uh, Bond, after the magic carpet ride, goes on to the motorcycle and takes a little bit of a lift there, and then gets to the CIA ladies. Bond jumps into random girl's car in the middle of a mission. It's, of course, for a cover, but uh, that's kind of a tricky move, but maybe that's what that was the only option, really. Yeah, well, the authorities were sweeping down the streets looking for Bond at that moment. Yeah, we have once again new Felix Leiter, John Terry this time. I think he's the worst Felix Leiter ever made. Well... <sighs> Well, he, he is the most Felix Leiter that has most escaped the 80s fashion convention before showing up in the film. <laughs> yeah, it's explained that they've been spying on Whitaker. And you can see it in the previous scene when Pushkin visits Whitaker. There is the camera and then there is the boat which they zoomed in. And then there's this sound indicating that the message is coming to the boat. 
and now we're introduced to the boat. In some of the early draft scripts, uh, you see that uh, Felix Leiter himself is taking the photos with some friends at the location. Kara is waiting in, at the hotel, Bond arrives late, and uh, Kara drugs Bond. Uh, in the early script, though, Bond returns to the hotel where Kara is in a patio, st- suntanning herself, and Kara comes from the patio and hands the drink to Bond, and Kara says to forget about Costco, and says to us, James, Bond levels with Kara, and uh, answers to the, why didn't you? As, uh, because you were too lovely. And Bond notices he's drugged. She tells him, uh, Georgi gave the drug, Koskov and Necros enter the room, and Georgi is like, Kara, my darling, I knew you would not fail me. Kara plays along and replies, Never, Georgi. There has been some necessary changes here, yeah. In the early treatments, Necros poses as the waiter and brings the drug to Martini. Then I guess we get the flight to Afghanistan. There's the van inspection before they get into the air. And I met the actor who plays the policeman who says, Ah, go, when he's checking the sterile heart inside the ambulance. Once and for all confirming exactly why you think this is one of the best porn films ever. I'm not biased in any way. <laughs> no, not, not in any way. I just have, a, have happened to visit most, most of the shooting locations, and this is the one where I actually have met the actor. <laughs> no, but uh, I always uh, have loved The Living Daylights quite a bit, if I can expose that already. The actor is called Abdesalam Bounouacha. Well, first of all, I have no idea how my friend Anas in Morocco managed to notice this guy, because according to IMDb, he hasn't done anything special, really. He has a bunch of, like, maybe ten credits. He's a Jordanian actor, and I don't remember if he lives in Tangier in Morocco or what, but... uh, Yeah, we were just in the main uh, square, and then my friend says that, Oh, this is really your lucky day. And then we walk to the cinema on the other side of the square... He's sitting there in front of a cinema outside on a terrace, drinking coffee or something. And then Anas introduces this guy to me. <laughs> he just, like, noticed this guy. He has never seen him before, but there he was. It was a little bit awkward because I didn't know what we were dealing with here. Like, who is this guy? Why are we meeting him? And then I had to make him tell me that in which part he is acting in The Living Daylights. But it's this small part right here. Well, it, it, it is Tangier, so being extra in five films total, I guess basically makes you a superstar. <laughs> Could be. We get to the plane. Bond uh, notes in the script that the heart in the eyes is in diamonds is a pig's heart. Yeah, it was a fake heart operated with the air platter. Yeah, but Bond knowing what the pig's heart looks like. for <laughs> lo- Looking at them for so many times. <laughs> Like maybe maybe he ha- in, in in his flat under his bed he has like a collection of pig's hearts. Yeah, and um, Koskov <laughs> makes the line. I've been on a secret mission to misinform the British intelligence. Of course, he's just blowing smoke here. There's so much lies and backstabbing in this film. It's quite layered, as he ha- as we have noted before. Like now, Koskov is playing the role for Bond, and Bond is playing his role for the Koskov. And then there's the repeated line. Well, kind of up repeated. In The Man with the Golden Gun, you have the line at Scaramanga's Island by Roger Moore, much more. There's a four-letter word, and you're full of it. And here it's, we have a saying, Thugiogi, and you're full of it. In early scripts, it was a little bit more blunt. It was like, good morning, James. I must make big apology, but we have an old saying, do not use rabbit gun to shoot bear. Bond replies, 
we have an old saying, bullshit. <laughs> okay, we're in the airbase, and there is the rather confusing moment where Koskov is assisted by the other general friend. So apparently, somehow, Pushkin has never told anything about what he knows to the other Soviets. Because this, this, this guy is completely clueless and helping him out. Yeah, I, I, I can kind of buy that, Pushkin not being that open. Or the rest of the Soviet upper-ups not being that forward. Or the fact that one of their high-ranking members has, I don't know if defected, but changed sides and joined up with this American freelance gun dealer. Like, in Soviet hierarchy, that could be bad enough PR catastrophe so that you would most likely simply want to keep your mouth shut and try to deal with the situation covertly without alerting any foreign officials, but also not your own men. Yeah, so at the moment, at the minimum level, only Pushkin and the people who were in the opera house in the beginning of the film with Koskov, those are the people who know. So what is it? In total, three people. And, and most likely some of Pushkin's upper-ups. Yeah. Because uh, doesn't Pushkin make the case that, that Costco has been ordered to be arrested? Yes. Like, so, uh, at least he was... He, he just says that he was about to arrest him for misuse of state funds. Yeah. And if, if Pushkin has been given the order to arrest Costco, in, the, in that case, someone more higher in the hierarchy must also be in the know of Costco's actions. Yeah, you could also draw the conclusion that this was the time for Costco to make the fake defection because he already knew that Pushkin knew that he was going to arrest him. Uh, pretty much, yeah. There is also the point that I'm not sure if this all... Fake killing of Pushkin is needed. They could have just been with Bond and Pushkin could have been at the hotel like, okay, Koskov is the bad guy, let's team up, let's go, and uh, we will go get Koskov immediately, for like via Kara or something. But of course now the entire plot that they were doing is for certain exposed, because they don't know that they are plotting together against Koskov. Yeah, uh, I, I took it the way that they are unsure of where Costco is and what is Costco's next plan or his next move and they decide to fake the Pushkin assassination simply to see what Costco does next in order to kind of refine the trace. So they arrive with Hercules to Afghanistan which is also of course filmed in in the Wazazat desert in Morocco. Wazazat is, of course, prominently used in The Man Who Would Be King, Lawrence of Arabia. So we have landed to Wazazat and uh, greeted by the general. Then, then we get Bond and Kara into the prison. And the prison guard is, of course, Ken Sharrock. Ken Sharrock uh, playing the garden. <laughs> he sounds like he's from my area, you know, Yorkshire, kind of northern England. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, John Glenn noticed that it could be kind of a strength to just keep him using his own accent. And he said that uh, John Glenn said that it was some kind of a northern accent. Yeah. Prisoner! Oh! Murder! Oh! I say he's kind of stubborn. I didn't tell you to get up! No! Get up. Okay. What an asshole. <laughs> well, it is the Soviet efficiency. And then we, of course, using the Q invention to get out of the impossible situation and uh yeah ken sharrock is known for a prayer for the dying shirley valentine art malik uh, is in the prison as well 
playing Cameron Shaw. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah, Cameron Shaw is the most bizarre character in this entire film. Just how does an Oxford graduate end up with the Taliban? Well, it's quite typical that the people from the Middle East or Afghanistan would come to study into the West and then go back. And this uh, keyring has the fastest stun gas in the world. Immediate knockoff. But is Cameron Shaw actually part of the uh, Mujahideen? Because Bond, when he goes to visit Cameron Shaw, he asks, can you make me in touch with the Mujahideen? Yeah. So what is that? I still don't get it. Maybe it's like, like a Yoda moment from, from Empire Strikes Back. Luke Skywalker is looking for the famous rebel soldier, teacher, whatever guy, and does not realize that he's actually, you know, standing in front of him all this time. <laughs> like, even though he has already explained that, my name is Cameron Shaw, I'm the leader of the whatever super badass section of this country. <laughs> Yeah, that yeah, was very well, intellectual. Yeah, well, I'm sorry. Well, even with that out of the way, one <laughs> <laughs> who has been a master in tying up different clues all throughout the film, all of a sudden completely fails to tie up an extremely obvious clue. Yeah, <laughs> let's say it like that. And uh, well, you were fantastic. We're free, Kara. We're in a Russian airbase in the middle of Afghanistan. <laughs> <laughs> Golden lines. Yeah, in the early scripts, there's a part where when they exit the base, well, Cameron is, first of all, still called Ranjit. They travel and continue climbing the mountains where they go. There is some observation plane looking up ahead, trying to find Bond and Kara. And they're on their way to the center of operations of Cameron Shah. Then Koskov and Negros examine Bond's escape point from the airbase, and Koskov orders Negros to go get the prisoners back dead or alive. Necker sends like a couple of baddies to the Cameron Shaw base, actually. When it comes to this entire film, uh, well, Bond is not yet too Americanized. Like, I feel it's the problem sometimes with License to Kill. Uh, less gorgeous locations, less wide opening shots. So I guess you could say that it contributes to the reality as well, or, or, or the realism. But I feel that uh, License to Kill has moments where the cinematography and the locations are not as inspiring and yeah yeah it looks like it could be a tv show on tv sometimes it looks like a tv show but uh, here the living daylights has a clear edge it has more interesting location and perhaps a better cinematography then again mm. si- since you mentioned bond and being americanized it is important to note that bond as a character actually is extremely americanized and has always been how well <sighs> The most obvious things that come to mind like right away is... First of all, from the production standpoint, yeah, yeah, the films are being produced by Eon Productions, which is a British production house, but they are also being co-produced with MGM, which is an American company. And Bond himself, in my opinion, really does not that often showcase... British nationalism in any real way, outside of the fact that it is often stated that he's a British secret agent, he works for MI6, and the fact that the films themselves open in Britain. Bond himself does not have any kind of a noticeable thick British accent. He, he doesn't speak in thick Cockney or, or anything like that. 
his work values and worldview is kind of very American. He he supports capitalism and opposes communism. He joins Taliban just like Rambo does. The, for, for fuck's sake, sake in, in Bond films, if, if Bond drinks tea, it is because the bad guys are offering it to him. Bond himself actually prefers black coffee, which once again is more American drink. And I'm, I'm not trying to say that every single person in Britain likes and drinks gallons of tea. Obviously not. But in, in many ways... James Bond acts so open-worldly. He's, he's so cosmopolite in his actions that the character kind of ceases to be purely 100% British and he becomes this British-American hybrid which is very much American. Because the look of the films is different. Maybe it's down to the accents that we hear throughout the film. Some jokes, some originality... Because they, they look like James Bond films. And there's something to that. Especially still these late 80s James Bond films look like actual James Bond films. But once you start to get your baddie as someone who has an American accent, you have a big role for Felix Leiter who has an American accent. You go to the Americas to do a bunch of action. And it's the same problem with um, Diamonds Are Forever, which spends a hell of a lot of time in Las Vegas. And Baha, I don't own anything at Baha, but um, yeah, I think Bond shouldn't go to Las Vegas or spend extended periods of time in the Americas because we've seen that millions of times. I think it is British, you know. It's created by Ian Fleming, who was a British author. Problem solved. Goodbye, Henrik. It features British cars, such as the Aston Martin. Every James Bond typically has a really good British accent, so of course it is, you know. He chokes like British. He can actually dress. It's a very British dress sense too, you know, and kind of British <laughs> humour. But to me, I, I don't pick up anything else except the fact that Ian Fleming was British author and the fact that he works for MI6. Like, I, I, I don't pick or I don't recognize the accent that strongly. I kind of see how he dresses himself up. I, I see that more universal. And I, I, I don't find, find that British humor in the films. I find very, very open and very universal humor in, in Bond films. Certainly the later Bond films like Daniel Craig era or even Pierce Brosnan era, it starts to get more and more Americanized. Like in, in everything, it's more formalized. It has less and less of this like a family doing together this production, this that belongs to us. And it's more like any other action flick, really. Except there's Bond. I, I don't know, I, I kind of... I, like, I, I'm not say, saying that you're wrong. Like, I, I'm freely to admit that I, I might be the one who is in wrong here. But by all means, I simply... When I look at Bond films, I don't see that shift. Mm. Like, I, I don't see that hard shift. Like, I, I do, of course, I do recognize that as the franchise advances... The, the way how the films are shot and what type of action happens in them and the feeling of the movies, I I do, of course, acknowledge that it changes with the times. Like, Pierce Brosnan Bond films are very different from Sean Connery or even Timothy Dalton Bond films in every way, in, in the way how what, what type of action beats there are and how the action is portrayed and all of these ways, but I, I don't... Mm. S- 
I myself, I don't see them them becoming more American in that point. Like I, I, I don't see see there this gap that that Timothy Dalton era still was very British spy filming, and and then with with Pierce Brosnan, it would have become Mm-mm. become Americanized. No, I'm talking about License to Kill, where it definitely seems like something that you could see. Like, I don't know what do you fucking call it. Maybe Miami Vice episode or something. Some kind of a beach titties episode in the late 80s. Yeah, hard for me to say yet about how television series, if that is even a word, the, the, the License to Kill feels alike when when we approach it in the podcast. Yeah. I, 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 I haven't given it yet that hard look that... that yeah. I remember it being kind of very much on the same vein and very much the same type of film in its essence than basically what the franchise has been up until that film. Okay, we are in Cameron's quarters. Adjacent to Wazazat was a base with hotels, etc., where they filmed the Cameron Shaw base. The Shaw discussion is done in studio, of course. Bond asks in two occasions in this film from Cameron, you want help? You won't help? No, he won't help you. <laughs> Cameron Shaw is kind of reluctant in any, every way. He wants to help only after realizing that the arms bought by Koskov could be used against them. Then we get to the romantic private suite, Haista Paska. Yeah, it means beautiful in Afghan, of course. Um. <laughs> yeah. Is there such a thing as an Afghan language? I don't think there is. I'm pretty sure. I, I was like... I was thinking about that. Like, what, 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 what? I think it's Pashto. What the hell is the language that he's talking about? It, it, it's Afghan. It, it's it, it's the language that has been spoken by Afghans in Afghan. <laughs> okay. Oh well. Bond makes it sound simple. Well, well, I mean, if it's not Pashto, which which it most likely then is not, because Bond states that 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 it, it's it's Afghan. So. What what language is Bond speaking? Finnish. Is it Finnish or does it just sound extremely lot like <laughs> a certain sentence? It does. <laughs> but he didn't finish that sentence, thankfully. Okay, there's a lot of blue colors in this uh, room. It was apparently to make some kind of romantic feel, according to DP Alec Mills. I don't know how cold blue is evoking erotic, sensual, romantic feelings, I don't know, but... Uh, yeah, there's the early script where Bond complains the vodka in this place, and Kara sees the rough ways of the Snow Leopard Brotherhood, and she says that Siberia might not be so bad after all. Oh, snap. <laughs> then we get to the exchange at dawn. Well, he, Yeah, he... well, I, I mean, he's going to stone the de- lady to death after the film ends, so... He, he just... In, in, give the guy a break, it just... For the first time in his life, he's joining some other club than the country club or the casino club. <laughs> it's not your typical country club. Yeah, yeah. Uh, MI6 has prohibited Bond from joining any, uh, any other clubs, and now finally Am is not looking at what Bond is doing, and the first thing he does is join the Taliban. <laughs> <laughs> of course. It would have. But on the same note, the only goddamn reason why the Taliban actually are there on the film is because this was filmed in the 80s. 
Yeah, this was a risky move. Like previously, they had not made any kind of um, political connections to Bond in this way. And here they do it for the first time they take a risk and it completely backfires. Like back in the 80s, where the Cold War was going on, Hollywood got the apparent enthusiasm to always remember to also honor the, the Mua. How, do, how the fuck did you <laughs> pronounce Mujahedin. 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 Goddammit, Kari. Mujahedin. Yeah? Mu- whatever. Like, it's the foreign language. <laughs> I don't Yeah, to, to, to give give some lip service to Mujahedin, who at the time were fighting against the Soviets. But because they were fighting against Soviets back in the day, also Hollywood wanted to get into it. And kind of a start to spread this Afghan world and U.S. together against the communism message throughout the world. And, well, that, that is the reason why why John Rambo, of all people, also joined Afghan freedom fighters. And it, it doesn't come off that well in Rambo 3 either, because it's first of all, it's goddamn John Rambo who just in the previous film had returned back to Vietnam to shoot once again a bunch of colored people. But also because Rambo does not speak the language at all, so so it once again goes in the vein that the Afghans are like to Rambo, like Ruski, and Rambo is Ruski, Ruski, and then they join forces. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's stupid in Rambo 3, it's extremely stupid. And it's extremely stupid in Living Daylight also. Yeah, we kind of ex- expect Rambo to join the Taliban because he's kind of crazy from the Vietnam War. He's a bit unstable. But James Bond, you know? Yeah, of course. R- Rambo was not that anti-establishment, however. Yeah, it just tells of the changed uh, situation or the what they knew about or how the Mujahideen actually changed over the course of years. So it's not this bil- film's fault, really. It's not the film's fault. The fact that after the Cold War, after the Soviet threat was gone, the Islamist Afghan freedom fighters turned into jihadist organizations, it's it's not Living Daylight's fault. Yeah. I, I'm not faulting Timothy Dalton for the fact that 9-11 happened. That's not my case. But, but it, it, it is film's fault that the film itself decides to pander into the political aspects and the political feelings of the time to a point where it all of a sudden completely left field. It disregards the serious, realistic, low-violence spy movie thing and, and goes into James Bond 007 action-adventure. Where, where there is two opposing armies and and people are riding horseback, throwing grenades, and the lady leads the Mushaden <laughs> to charge against the Soviet base, and and oh, oh and and, the, and then they fly over the bridge, and Bond uses the bomb that he is in the airplane to bomb the bridge, and like like all, all these action beats are something that I felt were in the wrong movie. Okay, when it comes to this whole Mujahideen thing, uh, uh, there was Copy Broccoli's friend Baron Enrico di Portanova. He made a documentary on the plight of Mujahideen, which encouraged uh, Copy to 
break the rules for this time and make Bond a part of a unsettled conflict. So yeah, cinematographer is Alec Mills, first worked in Bond in On Her Majesty's as camera operator. John Glenn promoted from the inside Alec Mills because Alan Hume was unavailable. His favorite shot probably is the so-called chocolate box shot. It's the early morning sunrise or sundown, whichever the case was in the real world, of the sun and the horses going as the silhouette passed. Yeah, Art Malik was doing some little bit of a stunt work here, you could say. He was kind of, he had some experience with the horses, but not enough, I guess, and he was going with the horse and the horse went apeshit and he almost fell to his death because behind him was also coming 50 or 60 horses more, so he would have been completely trampled at that point and then told John Glenn that Don't put me in that kind of a position in this film ever again. There is also, when they arrived there, the very first shot, the cameraman was hand-holding the camera and fell over. You can actually see it there. <laughs> He tripped over a rock or sandbag or something. And the camera operator was Mike Frift. You can see how the camera suddenly stops the panning smoothly, following from right to left to follow the horses. I haven't even realized that before, I think. But apparently the action was better in this shot, so they used it anyway. So, now we get to the, like, how, how this, what the hell is going on with the whole plot, so, wow. So Koskov uses the arms down payment that he got from the Russians to buy opium. That 50 million dollars that was sitting on Whitaker's bank account for weeks, which is the point that Pushkin was complaining about. Now, since they think Pushkin is out of the picture, they have, uh, in my understanding, used the 50 million dollars and bought uh, diamonds with that, because diamonds are easier to smuggle than hard cash. So they put the diamonds in the ice, ship the whole shit to Afghanistan, where they can trade it to opium. And the opium, in turn, in the streets of New York, would be way more valuable than the arms still. So they get like tenfold profit on the streets of New York for the opium, and also can be able to deliver the arms to the Russians. Film doesn't point out whether or not these kind of trades have happened before. Maybe nobody knows. Maybe that there was this scam going on for some time, but now it's being stopped. And the Cameron Shaw is uh, helping the Snow Leopard Brotherhood from time to time and uh, sells the dope, helps them out in selling that to the Russians. And he couldn't care less if the Russians die of his bullets or the Snow Leopard's opium. Kind of, well, you could read that as racist, because it's just coming for the original normal kids on the street. But anywho, Cameron Shah needs weapons. And that's the bottom line. Cameron is also seeing, receiving some kind of a payment in some little bag from his troubles for the Snow Leopard. Now Kara risks her life completely by going ahead towards the base and snatches Cameron's gun. Which I read as that uh, she is simply head over heels in love with James Bond. Most likely, because outside of that, there really is no motivation for her actions. <laughs> did you did you catch the weird look from Bond towards Cameron when he starts walking towards the jeep? It's like, bitch, please. Like, why did you put me into this position? <laughs> one has to wonder how they're going to smuggle the opium, because these bags are fooling no one at the border inspection. At least, you would think so. What do you mean? They have a Red Cross logo in them. Well, that's all you need. <laughs> Ca care careful, our opium has to be kept absolutely <laughs> sterile. I don't know, maybe they, maybe they were counting on that nobody would ever inspect a presumed Red Cross uh, airplane. 
Like may- maybe the whole plan on how how to get the opium across the borders was you know ha- hanging on that. Do you think that the MI6 actually would allow James Bond to burn a half a billion of opium just like that? I mean, sure they would want it for <laughs> why themselves. Why? Why? Why wouldn't they? I mean, who was going to use it? <laughs> you don't burn the opium. Bring it back to England for the Queen, so she can use it. <laughs> well, but wasn't the Queen quite old already at that point? So, oh, she was quite young. <laughs> Good for her. <laughs> If we're talking about the Living Daylights, though, I think it has a really great story. Maybe the only problem or problems in Daylights is that their film really has no bigger point to offer. It's not more than a simple agent versus an arms dealer plotline. There are no big life lessons or anything like that, but of course one could argue that that's never been with Bond. Perhaps, yeah, but um, the film could have been more personal. I guess that the point goes to the baddie. We don't really have a strong baddie in this film. Yeah. Uh, but certainly this is this is fixed in the next film. And Dalton still smiles in this film. I think he could have done it a little bit more in License to Kill. Yeah, with Whitaker, the problem is that Whitaker is not that much in the film. Whitaker is always uh, in a distance and never really comes into contact with Bond until the last second in a moment that feels like it's pasted in a little bit forced and it lacks the emphasis because we just saw the amazing scene with the Hercules and then we just got into Tangier and it loses that effectiveness. Yeah, and and Whitaker does not really come in contact with Bond even plot-wise. Like, yeah. in the end, Whitaker is Koskov's boss, in a sense. Yeah. But when it comes to the whole plan, the whole smeared spionem plot that is is behind the film storyline, that still is Koskov's plotting. And it is Costco's plan, which he is pulling off kind of in the way that Whitaker knows that the plot is in effect, but even Whitaker doesn't appear to completely know what the plot is. Mm-hmm. So, so that scene is really incredible. And what's more incredible is um, the fact that Whitaker looks not only like a dolphin, but he looks <laughs> he looks like Sheriff Pepper from the Man with the Golden Gun. <laughs> Maybe a bit Texan. Okay, maybe, so maybe, uh, maybe a bit, yeah. It's uh, Sheriff J W Pepper. Let's go get him, boy. <laughs> But Henrik Tom duo, we are now getting to the airbase war. We are taking care of the wire fence guard. Bond sets up the bomb, and then he's exposed. John Richardson is responsible for the big bangs in the airbase. They're really big sometimes. And Bond uh, is seen taxiing the plane. On one day, a stuntman fell off a horse and Barbara Broccoli helped the doctor with the surgery. She came out of that operation white as a ghost. Also, the DP almost was eaten by one of the propellers of the C-130. Kara Necros entered the plane. Kara has trouble understanding the guidance of James Bond from that small window from far, far away. It's a miracle that they're even able to communicate, which they probably would not be. Necros looking confused that he can't shoot the plane. Don't shoot the plane! Because it would get destroyed. 
big furniture van was used for the interior shot of the Jeep going inside the plane, because you can't do that trickery with the 130. Well, we're in the plane, finally. Peter Lamont actually created a full-size hydraulically operated replica of the C-130 plane inside Pinewood. So you could like shake it around and you would have this full background of the desert when you open the hatch. Pretty amazing. And we get to the in-flight fight. In the stunt, uh, BJ is playing James Bond and Jake Lombard is as Snake Rose. This was an extremely expensive scene, all things considered. The plane, the parachutes, the multiple locations, the fight sequence, the five minutes of the film here uh, coming in at $750,000 for five minutes of screen time. Yeah, so you built a completely working hydraulic replica of the plane to be used in a studio circumstances, but then when it comes to the actual fight scene, that you actually film out there in the sky using an actual airplane. Wisniewski recalled that the three days of film were incredibly strenuous hanging there from that back, and the actual stunt was done in the Mojave Desert. There was also always a inside the plane in case the two divers got unconscious because they would like be hit by the plane because they were swinging there like crazy and the plane diver would jump and catch the falling skydiver i think this was done at least once and, and thereby pulling the parachute okay net fight sequence is done in a smaller plane they couldn't get a, a c-130 in the u.s because they're very expensive a smaller two-engine version is used instead some fans have noticed it but uh, i think regular viewer will not have any idea the only time you can actually tell the difference is when necros falls with the boot overall this is the best fight scene of the film it, and w- yeah one w- w- one of the top 10, if, if not even top 5, fight scenes of the entire franchise. Absolutely. Th- this is the best part of the film. Necros is the best villain of the film. Yep. He almost kind of um, makes up for the lesser villains of the film. I kind of like him. He's kind of down to earth and uh, menacing dangers. And uh, yeah, this always, always, I can feel this scene in my, my stomach when I'm watching it and the plane is starting to like rise up and then uh, Kara opens the opens the hatch and they fall out it's incredible material and the reason is it was done for real yeah go- goes to show you that so- sometimes actually doing stuff the practical way using a hell of a lot of money for a small scene and risking p- actual lives does pay off in film business <laughs> yeah there was at least one occasion when BJ Ward had to let go of the net, he, he slipped and uh, had to use the safety parachute to save his life. Which was the first time actually in Bond history that a parachute was used for emergency purposes in Bond films. Yeah, I, this might even be the best uh, James Bond fight ever, as far as I'm concerned. We might have to check on that in some of the future episodes, but it just might be, quite easily. <laughs> the guy is hanging on to the boot, but... There's like a net all over the place, and he didn't catch that. But uh, yeah, he, he had a fetish for Bond's boots. Well, well who, who wouldn't? <laughs> I mean, God, God damn, they were military-issue leather boots. Yeah, more important than your life. Okay. <laughs> well, they, they cost a fortune if you lose them. Not as much as the scene. <laughs> like, like, like ne- ne- Necros may have lost his life, but Bond is a fucking bankrupt after after he has to repay the boots. 
Like there, there's many good fights in either franchise, and the franchise is what twenty four films long already. So there is a lot of material to go go through to pick the absolute number one fight. But this is most definitely like th- this is a standout fight scene. Standout fight scene, and you have John Barry's amazing music in the background. They complement each other very well. That that they do. I I I myself I may think that that the Afghanistan sequence is mostly nonsense, which has no place in the film, but I, I do still love the fact that the, the airplane segment is here. Well, why is it nonsense? Well, uh, basically because, uh, because of everything else that happens before they get into the airplane. Like, like the, the shots of the guys running horseback, shooting bazookas and that one moment when when one of them hijacks the bulldozer and drives that through the, what they have a shower building and knocks it over bearing to you two bear soviet asses yeah but that... all the explosions that happen because there is like 50 guys shooting at 50 guys but it, you made it sound like yeah, they're going to afghanistan for no reason well afghanistan i would suppose it would be a great location to Check out some drugs, and that's where the story takes you. I don't see a problem with that, but the Soviet ass is okay. You 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 could you could buy drugs basically from any place. You you don't have to go all the way to Afghanistan to simply buy drugs. It's a Bond film. Gotta travel. <laughs> <laughs> like you pointed out, even Rambo went to Afghanistan. We've seen Afghanistan. I like it. My favorite part in the film, probably the whole Afghanistan. Yeah, and Morocco for God's sakes. None of which actually appear in the Afghanistan sequence. You 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 have you have bunch of Soviets and bunch of hairy men, and you have sand dunes, and between those you have only one Soviet base, which gets blown up. This was actually an operational airport, which was in use, so there were a couple of flights every day, and uh, there there was a moment when the crew was preparing their arms, all kinds of stuff for the filming, and. There was a, a plane landing on the airport and, and the occupants of that plane were horrified of what they were seeing, like some fire and people running around or whatever the case was. <laughs> and then they had to enter the airport like underneath a huge web when they entered. And then we get to the dropping of the bomb. Which also is nonsense. Why? Well, basically because in, in your serious and realistic spy film, you have a sequence where they fly o- over a bridge and Bond drops off a bomb to blow up the bridge. It's it's kind of a far remove from the from what, what the film opened up with, the nightly sniper scene. Yes. But... This, is, this is once again some John Rambo in Afghanistan bullshit. Nah, yeah. Nah, it's fine. I just, I just kind of felt that it was... A bit out of place because it was not not established before. First of all, that there's a bridge. We see a little bit in the film that they're struggling at the bridge, and there are some tanks coming, as the uh, script explains. But yeah, the dude just decides, let's turn over. We have been traveling for I don't know 15 minutes, and let's turn back. And there's a bridge. Okay, let's drop the bomb there because that's what I can see from the airplane, clear as day. Yeah, I mean, you 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 have to show your support to the brave. Afghanistan freedom fighters who oppose Soviet forces. Mm. Yeah, you could say that. A bit, yep. Slightly. But uh, 
the scene itself is quite quite spectacular. I mean, the actual bridge was really small, not high at all. And then they had the model that they took to Afghanistan piece by piece and then constructed it there. It's quite a big uh, model. Cheap exit. So actually the early drafts were completely different. Bond doesn't exit via the jeep to the desert. He's actually alone in the plane. He instead goes with the C-130 to the sea. He lands on an aircraft carrier in the Indian Ocean. And the plane tips over the edge of the carrier and sinks. But of course Bond is fine. And then it cuts to the Thetis, the ship of Felix Leiter. And it's eerily silent. Bond goes to investigate. Everybody's tied. Kara has been having some bad time. She's as well there. And Whitaker orders Bond to get on his knees. Then Bond gets some, somebody's gun and some fight ensues. And then there's a man in black. And uh, he comes to save the day. He is Gogol. <laughs> or what you would call Pushkin in this film. And he says the same lines that you have in, in the film. Roughly something like, I owed you that one Bond. And, uh, so, but here is the cheap exit in the film. There was a miniature airstrip for which they that they did the miniature shots there, like coming out of the back of the plane with a jeep. No place to put down, he said, and they land with a jeep on a wide open desert. Just saying. Still, the airplane was close enough to the ground that they didn't die when the jeep crashes on the ground. Of course, it had a parachute, but the physics may be a little bit off here, you could say. I don't know. Science fact does it again. <laughs> okay, and there's a good restaurant in Karachi, so we can just make it. Now we just uh, completely cut from this moment back to Tangier, where Whitaker is inside the house that actually belonged to the owner of Forbes, where I was as well. Fight ensues. John Glenn Pitchin moment is seen when Bond enters. So why does Bond keep shooting the Panzer glass and not Whitaker himself at this moment? I was actually thinking the same thing myself. Like the best excuse you could make is that since the room is dark, yeah. Bond tries to make the headshot and he does not see that Whitaker's gun has the Panzer glass and does not mm. see the bullets ricochet off the glass. Of course you don't see that, but you could also argue that the angle from which he can shoot only includes the Panzer glass area. Yeah. But I, I I don't know, you know, I, I, if I would have been Bond, I would have simply shot him in the dick, be done with it. Very classy. Uh, uh, like I said, I would have been done with it. Yeah. yeah there would have been a bunch of funny jokes you could have done with, with the dude's expense after that. Yeah, Bond really should have just shot Whitaker in the penis and walked away and disappeared into the end credits, <laughs> leaving Whitaker with his dick injury. Yep. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, in the early script, Bond takes a toy soldier and throws it uh, to distract Whitaker with it. Unfortunately, in this nick of time in this film, you don't get that. And he hides behind a British vulture, Wellington. He had to do this and that and blah, 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 blah. And then Bond activates the keyring. <whistles> Interesting thing about the Koskov. Like, Koskov apparently hasn't told of the lost opium to Whitaker, regardless of knowing uh, what should wait Koskov. Like, he decides to say, stay at Whitaker's upstairs bedroom, knowing all the risks. Like, the dope is gone. Well, may, maybe Whitaker simply was not too angry at Costco for losing millions of money and mm. 
losing the dope and losing the Soviet base and losing the possibility of the guns and... Looks like it. Once again in an early script, uh, there's once again another plot twist. Like after the plane incident that you have, Bond and Kara return to Tangier Hotel, take the wrong taxi and there they are pointed with pistols and forced into Whitaker's villa where the scene with Koskov Gogol and Whitaker plays out with some small differences, but basically the same. Okay, then we get to Kara's concert, I guess. And uh, John Barry requested his own cameo and got it here. The, the, this is uh, quite something as well. Like in the early drafts, uh, Prince Charles and Princess Diana lookalikes were being wanted for the crowd. But also Cameron's posse was not mentioned being there. Also the actor that played Margaret Thatcher lookalike in Your, Your Eyes Only. She was called back with an actor that played her husband. But it was all scrapped when the tabloid The Daily Mirror reported that the actor of Prince Charles, Peter Hugo, he had recently gotten an 18-month sentence for a sexual offense toward a 14-year-old boy. And oh, you, you can oh. guess how the tabloids are running with that. That James Bond film has pedophiles in their film or whatever it was. Kara goes to her room and... Well, you notice that Bond has destroyed the key ring at Whitaker's, and uh, he seems to have another one handy for the final scene. In the early drafts, uh, Cara tells Bond goodbye, James, and that she has to leave on a world tour for six months. And then Bond quips, quote, I've lost out to girls before, but never to a cello. <laughs> and But they still have until Sunday evening to enjoy themselves. Wow. And Cara takes off Bond's shirt which doesn't happen here. It's just the O. James, which has survived for some reason all the drafts of this script. I did not know that. Personally, I, I really like the character of Kara because um, I don't think she's stupid in any way, really. I think she's just really innocent, hasn't had a lot of experience with the big world where Bond suddenly pulls her into. I think she's extremely beautiful. I think she has uh, like a genuine relationship going on with James Bond. There's phases of true affection between one another, especially from Mariam Dabo's side. And this is the best uh, Bond girl, at least since Diana Rick, script-wise. And uh, this is my favorite Bond girl, pretty much. But I heard that Tom Franklin was less uh, impressed. Uh, no, that's not true. You said that she's really annoying. Not true. Oh, you didn't. <clears throat> Let me just check that. Yeah, and I was like, oh boy, this is going to be another battle in the episode. You can check your file cabinet. Uh, you keep chat logs. Track of everything. <laughs> That's why you need signal and disappearing messages. Oh, yeah, tr yeah true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so are you going to dig deep and discover something I said 20 years ago and use it against me? Yeah. Loading, loading, loading. <clears throat> loading, loading, loading. <laughs> it's not that important. <laughs> <laughs> Where is it? <laughs> okay, I give up. Let's move on. Well, we have credits. And uh, if there was a man, it's a collaboration between Barry and the Pretenders. I like it a lot. And also the same band, uh, the Pretenders, does the music that is coming from uh, the earphones of Necros. Where has everybody gone? Okay, The Living Daylight's bests. Best Bond girl for me. Still all considered, I would reckon that this is still the my favorite pre-title sequence. 
John Barry, even though he didn't like this soundtrack, I think he said that this is his least favorite from his James Bond soundtracks, which is kind of weird. I think this might be close to being, it's at least in the top four, let's say, of his Bond soundtracks. Best fight scene, best Bond romantic relationship, and some of the best locations. Quickies, favorite performance. Who's, who goes first? Not me. Me. Go ahead. Timothy Dalton. Dalton. Dangerous. Yeah, that's my pick as well. Uh, Henrik, your favorite actor is the uh, go general, right? Wait, what? No? Okay. Like uh, where? Where? I, I, I must have misheard you. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll be still covering quickies here. Yeah, very quick. Yeah, yeah. Same, same here. Same here. Hands down, Timothy Dalton. Favorite scene, Tom. Yeah, my favorite scene was Koskov's defection. You know, in-flight fight, of course, it's my favorite scene. Yeah, that airplane fight. Yeah, favorite quota. I mean, quote. All I want is a real man. For my end, war. War has always been been man's main occupation. Fools say his greatest accomplishments were the wheel and the alphabet. I say it's battering ram and gunpowder. Hmm. You pick so random quotes, like one throwaway line somewhere in between that you can barely remember. But that's Henrik for ya. <laughs> for me, it's... Uh... <laughs> you were fantastic. We're free. Kara, we are in Russian airbase in the middle of Afghanistan. Uh, are you trying to imply that you can't be free in Afghanistan? No comment. I'm, I'm, I'm just quoting. It's not my personal like uh, opinion of any kind. <laughs> Favorite kill, Necros. Would be at the carnival when Saunders gets his mouth full of glass door. Tom? So I'm kind of preoccupied right now. Why? So I received an advert on Facebook advertising leather underpants, leather underwear, (laughs) with a hole especially made to fit my penis. (laughs) And I was informed that it can be traced back to my Google searches. Yeah, Which is absolutely yeah, not you true. You might be careful. Like, Which is not true. <laughs> More often than not, than not are based on your search history. <laughs> yeah, but it's not, though. What? Um, I don't know how to continue from this anymore. I'm sorry, could you repeat the question? Yeah. Favorite leather pants. Oh, God. You know, I, I have read an article that claims that Facebook these days, because of the algorithm, it knows you better than you know yourself. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, favorite kill, kill, Tom? Holding onto the boot of Dangerous Dalton. Yeah. We have some new quickies here as a, as a landmine for you. It, it's, a, it's another question if you will comply and follow my lead. Well, anyway, is Marion Dabot the hottest Bond girl that has ever existed? Henrik? No. Tom? Yeah. Is she? Woo! Yeah. First shot that comes to mind. Necros and his boot. The big heart in the, in the ice locker. Which shot best exemplifies this film? Necros and his boot. Oh, I would say it's the, it's the two per Soviet asses. Okay. So that's what you would put in a poster. <laughs> okay. uh, yep. Wow. Yep. I, I, well, like, like in, in the upper half of the 
poster there would be a 007 in, in, in a huge huge lettering and then there would be a major image of, of the shower scene and those two asses <laughs> like if possible I would even you know kind of a crop the image again and take this extreme close up just on those asses and underneath them would be Timothy Dalton is James Bond <laughs> and uh, Tom it would have to be Koskov's defection so the uh, that scene, you know, and and the shot taken of him because it really sets the whole film up. Favorite shot, Nakers and his boot. What the fuck? <laughs> you you are coming up with new quickies there, you dead bastard. <laughs> yeah, it would have to be Dalton hanging off the back of the plane in Afghanistan. <laughs> Henrik. <laughs> mo- mo- most likely the Soviet asses. Like that is poster worthy material. I was a bit shocked as a kid when I saw that. Okay. Uh, favorite's hot. <laughs> <laughs> Go fuckers. <laughs> I-, I I would say mo- 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 most definitely Kara. What's her name? Yeah, Mariam Dabo. <laughs> yeah, mo- most definitely not her. No. No. Tom. My favorite hot is the girl. <laughs> it was Kara, right? No, no, it was. Was not like, like I, I precisely said that not Kara. You must be joking. I, I guess it's it's the it's the it's the it's the Soviet asses. <laughs> what tickled your fancy the most? Like, Dangerous Dalton. Ooh, ooh. What took uh, Tom out? What's his name again? Koskov. <laughs> you, you have been calling him Krakow or something like throughout the episode. <laughs> well, nothing really for me. Like maybe the camera base, it could go a little bit faster. Uh, things get a bit slow when Bond and Kara peek out of the window in their room and there's the Snow Leopard guy beating some guy and I hope he's not invited to dinner. That scene. I feel like with this kind of lost floor, you know. What took Henry out? Like what? What took me out, or what killed my boner? Uh, isn't the kind, that kind maybe, of the same maybe, thing? Because the first answer would be Karamila boy. Oh, I guess we are gonna introduce favorite nut then. Okay, favorite <laughs> nut guys. <laughs> the Soviet asses. You are lying to yourself, and you know it. <laughs> Necros. Oh, but isn't he kind of lean and mean and mm, tasty? <laughs> Fuck is going on? <laughs> What's happening to this podcast? <laughs> well, 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 the simple answer is tired curry is happening to this podcast. <laughs> what pulled me in? Uh, uh, <laughs> everything else, really. Like, uh, of course, Kara and uh, the multi-layered plot, the constant backstabbing. It's like a real investigative uh, agent adventure of the old times a bit until, you know, it gets a little bit explodey-ish, but that's okay. It's still more grounded than Roger Moore, much more. But in-flight fight most definitely pulled me in. Hey, I'm not the only one answering these questions here. <laughs> <laughs> you are at this point. To, to me, it's the night uh, the nighttime sniper scene when Bond is... Bond is using the rifle to zoom in into some Soviet asses. And Tom? Well, the Taliban made an impression on me. <laughs> the great connection between James Bond and the cello girl. And she was a great actor, you know. What told you to pull in? Leather underwear. Mm. <laughs> 
reveal your darkest secrets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, admit nothing. Uh, scissors of sacrilege. <laughs> what would you change in the film? I would ditch Krabby and employ a Russian actor to play the role of Koskov. What? <laughs> I wouldn't really. No, in, in, I, I wouldn't really <laughs> change anything personally. I thought the ice chase was a bit goofy. I, I ser- seriously wasn't in a lack of action, and I thought the movie went by really fast. Yeah, yeah. I, I would have an answer to this question, but I know already for certain. For the previous time, I put this stunt that Curry will simply be censoring my whatever I may may have to say about certain conspiracy. Yep, for sure. You really know you're watching the living daylights when when you join the Taliban. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> well, you really know you've been watching the film when when you next time take a holiday to the Mojave Desert and prefer to skydive holding on to a boot. Yeah, well, you really know you're watching the living daylights when the next Red Cross lawsuit hits you in the face. <laughs> Three adjectives to describe the film. Uh, I would say globe-trotting, smooth, enjoyable. Gripping, exciting, colorful. Mm, hmm. Afghanistan maybe not so much, but uh, dangerous. Ah, I should have used that one. Ah. <laughs> yeah, but you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Failed opportunity. Henrik. Mm, assing, assing and Soviet. No, no, no! I, 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 I go, I, I go with Hitman-esque board and trailblazing. Did you look at your Rolex? Nope. Nope. And I did not look at my watch one bit. Okay. Um, Tom, would you, would you recommend the Living Daylights? Yes, I would. Would I recommend this film? No doubt. If you consider like different aspects, entire makeup of how how you feel after the film, this might even be the best Bond film out there, like all elements considered. I mean, it has a lot of flaws. It's not perfect by any stretch of imagination, but it just might might be the best package after all. It has everything. It has gadgets, uh, sneaking, investigations, backstabbing, jailbreak, ass, and. Um, <laughs> Incredible fight aboard Hercules. The only thing that clearly we have noted here is the lack of better villains. But I'm not sure if that's so big of a deal. This is trying to be more realistic, so they're not so out of this world in this time. That's fine. Negros is great, but yeah. But it's not a big problem. It's a spectacular flight, and the end fight with Whitaker seems a little forced. It's a bit of pasted in, underwhelming... But those are the biggest issues of the film. I can live with that. Recommendation. Henrik is checking out asses. Yeah, yeah. Where were we? What would you recommend, TLD? Nah. Whoa, what? <laughs> no, no. I, I, I would, I would recommend. Yay. I'm not certain if, if I, I agree with Curry this being the best Bond film ever, out of all of them. But it still is pretty damn solid package. Yeah. It's not super inspiring, but I feel it's the best package overall. After f- watching it, you don't feel like, that, oh, that was a little bit awkward, or that was a little bit shit. Okay, Ice Chase, well, yeah, we can forget that. Yeah, but. that, and the, and the Afghanistan. Come on, 
It's asses. Yeah, yeah. With, with that, since you reminded me of the asses, I have to cross this Afghanistan for twice. So yeah, yeah, double strike for Afghanistan. Uh, anything to add at this point? I mean, we've been going on for a solid four hours, 46 minutes. Yeah, and whose fault is that? I don't know. Okay, guess that's the living daylights, finally. The next time in the Bond Marathon, we will check out the li- uh, License to Kill. And once again, it will be released on the last Thursday of November. It'll be interesting to see how the two films compare with each, with each other. I'm a massive fan of License to Kill, so I'm pretty sure that will take the title of the best Dalton film. And if you still haven't joined our infamous uh, movie challenge, the International Cinema Challenge for 2019, please do. And that consists of 20 films from 20 different countries. We oblige you to join to the challenge. If you don't want to watch those particular films, then watch your own goddamn films from 20 different countries. And then come to our podcast in the beginning of 2020, when we will kind of reminisce how amazing this challenge was and how you have grown as a human being. (laughs) (laughs) And wasted countless of hours uh, and um, dollars. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube uh, are the places where you can find us. I am ready to get the hell out of this laboratory. I have some pressing engagements. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for joining this podcast. Thank you. I hope you've been shaken and stirred, because I certainly have. Or is that just really shit? We're losing fuel and fast. I just hope we can make Pakistan. There's no place to put down the flying laboratory. Go in the back. Get in the jeep. Quickly. Fasten your seatbelt. I know a great titty bar in Karachi. If we hurry up, we can just. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah.